0: Yes, yes, I'm going
1: Welcome, Panastorians. Might be a bit rocky because we're using a new system.
0: We're testing out all of our remote recording options. We figure since we've got the time and the opportunity, why not?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, welcome back. Yeah. Hopefully, you all are doing safely and well because we're still in self isolation mode. Uh, and what better way to deal with self-isolation than talking about the worst nuclear disaster in human history?
0: I was gonna say this is uh we planned this well before the pandemic was a thing. And we planned uh,
1: this a year ago.
0: I'm gonna make this statement now because there's a couple episodes that are coming up that are sort of like weirdly prophetic right now. Um we talked <laughs> about it in the other nonsense episode a little bit, but we planned this like well over a year ago, as well as our next upcoming episode on the pandemic, we have a Google Docs thing. It's kind of a clusterfuck, but it has a bunch of our ideas. So we have like the next probably like 30 episodes planned. And so at any given point, honestly, so it's kind of hilarious. What, well, it's not really funny, to be honest. None of this is funny, but it, uh, yeah, kind of weird when this is a thing now. We're talking about like crazy tragedies and pandemics and we're in a pandemic. It's really fucking weird. Yeah. Really weird.
1: Yeah. It's a very strange times, but uh, we talked about that quite extensively and other nonsense a couple weeks ago. Yes. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it, go check it out because I thought it was pretty good, <laughs> but uh,
0: it was pretty good
1: anyway. So yeah, today we are talking about the Chernobyl disaster.
0: Happy times. Happy times.
1: And uh for those of you wondering why the episode is called 12345, you will find out in this episode. And if you've already watched the HBO series, then you already know why. Which
0: like everybody has. And I'm just gonna say this now, actually. I I had a little bit, like or not really had have a little bit of like anxiety about this episode in the sense of everybody's seen Chernobyl, like we're at peak Chernobyl hype in terms of content. And yeah, so I'm like, it's good, but I'm a little worried.
1: That's Why it's the perfect time to listen? Because it
0: could also be bad.
1: Chernobyl. Well, the Chernobyl, the Chernobyl series wasn't 100 percent accurate. They did a lot of true artistic liberties.
0: True. I mean, there were like 10,000 podcasts that also followed it, though.
1: Yeah, but um,
0: <laughs> we're awesome, so we're, I'm not. We're... I'm not trying to tear us down. I'm just saying I had some anxiety about this actually in the last.
1: Right. Yeah. It's a great it's a great show. If you haven't checked it out, you should go check it out because they did a really amazing job. Basically, the way I describe it is as the historical horror. And the reason why I say that is because it's not the serial killer stalking from the woods or supernatural force kind of horror. It's literally real horror based on something that is beyond our control. And that is the real horror of Chernobyl, like in reality, not just in the show, but in reality. It's true. Uh, and we will explain to you why, but first there is a lot to cover beforehand. And one thing that Lindsay and I learned while researching this is that we should never, ever, ever become nuclear physicists.
0: Yeah, it was, uh... oh God, (laughs) my brain (laughs) brain hurts truthfully. Sorry, I was distracted with trying to change my Zoom background, but eh, fuck, my hair is so bad. (laughs) Okay. Anyways, so the Chernobyl nuclear power plant uh, officially was called the Vladimir Ilyich Lenin nuclear power plant. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, so they just went with Chernobyl. Um, It's a now closed nuclear power plant near the abandoned city of Pripyat, Ukraine, about 15 kilometers northwest of the city of Chernobyl, which is about 110 kilometers northwest, of, or sorry, not northwest, but north of Kiev. The plant itself was made up of four RBMK-1000 reactors. And these reactors were the culmination of the Soviet nuclear power program to produce a water-cooled power reactor with dual-use potential based on their graphite-moderated plutonium production military reactors. I'm going to try and speak slowly through this because there's a lot. The first of these operated in in Obninsk from 1954 until 1959 and generated 5 megawatts of electricity from 30 megawatts of thermal power. Subsequent prototypes were put into use. By using a a minimalist design that used regular or light water for cooling, and the reason I make that distinction is that when, especially when we get to World War II, we'll probably talk about heavy water a lot, and yeah, so being able to use light water is a really big advantage because heavy water is not something that's easy to access all the time. So yeah, by using a design that was able to use light water for cooling and graphite for moderation, it was possible to use natural uranium for fuel instead of considerably more expensive enriched uranium, which is also the stuff you need to make bombs, by the way. This meant that a massive reactor could be built, but still be cheap enough to be built in large numbers and simple enough to be maintained and operated by locals. They were designed with 45 year lifetime in mind after a midlife refurbishment, ideally. The reactor pits are made of reinforced concrete and houses the vessel of the reactor, which is made of a cylindrical wall and top and bottom metal plates. The vessel contains the graphite stack and is filled with helium-nitrogen mixture, providing an inert atmosphere for the graphite and for mediation of heat transfer from the graphite to the coolant channels. Moderator blocks are made (laughs) of nuclear graphite and are stacked inside a reactor vessel into a cylindrical core with a diameter and height of about 14 14 by 8 meters, so 46 by 26 feet. The maximum allowed temperature of the graphite is up to 730 degrees Celsius, or 1,350 degrees Fahrenheit. So really fucking hot. The reactor vessel is a steel steel cylinder with a diameter and height of 14 by 9 meters, or 47 by 32 feet, and a wall thickness of 16 millimeters. Moderator is surrounded by a cylindrical water tank, a welded structure with 3 centimeters thick walls, and internally divided into 16 vertical compartments. The water is supplied to the compartments from the bottom and removed from the top the water can be used for emergency reactor cooling. The tank contains thermocouples for sensing the water temperature and ion chambers for monitoring the reactor power. The tank, sand layer, and concrete of the reactor pit also serve as additional biological shields. The top of the reactor is covered by the upper biological shield, or UBS, AKA schema E after the explosion at Chernobyl. Elena, as it was known. The UBS is a cylindrical disc of three by 17 meters in size. It is penetrated by standpipes for fuel and control channel assemblies. The top and bottom are covered with 4 centimeter thick steel plates, welded to be helium tight, and additionally joined by structural supports. The space between the plates and pipes is filled with terpentinite, a rock containing significant amounts of bound water. It is supported on 16 rollers located on the upper side of the reinforced cylindrical water tank. The structure of the UBS supports the fuel and control channels the floor above the reactor in the central hall, and the steam and water pipes. Below the reactor core is the lower biological shield, or LBS, which is similar to the UBS, but a bit smaller. It is penetrated by the tubes for the lower ends of the pressure channels and carries the weight of the graphite stack and the coolant inlet p- piping. A steel, two heavy a steel structure, two heavy plates intersecting in a right angle under the center of the LBS, and welded to the LBS, supports the LBS, and transfers the mechanical load to the building. Above the UBS, there's the upper shield cover. Its top surface is the floor of the central hall. It serves as a part of the biological shield and for thermal insulation of the reactor space. Its center area above the reactor channel consists of individual remo- removable steel graphite plugs located over the tops of the channels. Sorry, this is boring, fam. But it's important. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. The fuel channels consisted mostly of welded 8-centimeter-thick zircaloy or alloy zircaloy, I don't know, zircaloy tubes, which led through the channels in the center of the graphite moderator blocks. The top and bottom parts parts of the tube are made of stainless steel and joined with the central zircaloy segment with zirconium steel alloy couplings. The pressure tube is held in the graphite stack channels with two alternating types of 22 millimeter high split graphite rings. One has direct contact with the tube and has 1.5 millimeters of clearance to the graphite stack. The other one is directly touching the graphite stack and has 1.3 millimeters clearance to the tube. This assembly reduces transfer of mechanical loads caused by neutron-induced swelling, thermal expansion of the blocks, and other factors to the pressure tube while facilitating heat transfer from the graphite blocks. The pressure tubes are welded to the top and bottom plates of the reactor vessel. While most of the heat energy from the fission process is generated in the fuel rods, approximately 5% is deposited in the graphite blocks as they moderate the fast neutrons formed formed from fission. This energy must be removed to avoid overheating the graphite and about 80 to 85% of the energy deposited in the graphite is removed by the fuel rod coolant channels using conduction via graphite rings. The rest of the graphite heat is removed from the control rod channels by forced gas circulation. Second generation cores like Chernobyl 4 have 1,661 fuel channels and 211 control rod channels. The fuel assembly is suspended in the fuel channel on a bracket with a seal plug. The seal plug has a simple design to facilitate its removal and installation by the remotely-controlled fu- refueling machine. The small clearance between the pressure channel and the graphite block makes the graphite core susceptible to damage. If a pressure channel deforms, and the deformation can cause significant pressure loads on the graphite blocks and lead to more damage. Fuel pellets are made of uranium-dioxide powder, centered, which means formed with heat, with a suitable binder, into barrels of 11.5 millimeter diameter and 15 millimeters long. So basically they take uranium dioxide powder, find a suitable binder, and uh, heat it up and make fuel pellets that are about, yeah, about 11 millimeters around and 50 millimeters long. A 2 millimeter hole through the axis of the pellet serves to reduce the temperature in the center of the pellet and facilitates removal of gaseous fission products. The enrichment level of the fuel is about 2% and the maximum allowable temperature of the fuel is pellet is 2100 degrees Celsius or 3800 degrees Celsius or yeah, about 3,800 degrees Fahrenheit. The fuel rods are filled with helium and hermetically sealed. Retaining rings help to seal the pellets in the center of the tube and facilitate heat transfer from the pellet to the tube. The pellets are axially held in place by a spring, and each rod contains 3.5 kilograms, or about 7 pounds, of fuel pellets. The fuel rods are 3.5 meters, or about 11 feet long, and the maximum allowable temperature of one of the rods is 600 degrees Celsius, or about 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: I promise you all all of this is important,
0: yeah, it's really dense, but it it actually is really important. <laughs> it,
1: it is extremely important, I promise you we we promise you, I should say, yeah
0: The fuel rods consist of two sets with eighteen fuel rods and one carrier rod. The fuel rods are arranged along the central carrier, and all rods are held in place with ten stainless steel spacers separated by about fourteen inches or three hundred and sixty centimeters. I'm trying to give both dimensions for all of our listeners. <laughs> Uh The two sets are joined with a cylinder at the center of the assembly, and during the operation of the reactor, this dead space without fuel lowers the neutron flux of the central plane of the reactor. The total mass of uranium in the fuel assembly is about 114 kilograms, which is around 253 pounds. Most of the reactor control rods are inserted from above. 24 shortened rods are inserted from below and are used to augment the axial power distribution control of the core. The rods have a four and a half meter long graphite section at the end, which is known as a displacer, and its role is to enhance the difference between the neutron flux, tenuation levels of inserted and retracted rods, as the graphite displaces the water that would otherwise act as a neutron absorber. When the control rod is fully retracted, the graphite displacer is located in the middle of the core height, with 1.25 meters of water at each end. The control rod channels are cooled by an independent water circuit, and kept at about 40 to 70 degrees Celsius or around 100 to 158 Fahrenheit. The narrow space between the rod and its channel hinders water flow around the rods during their movement and acts as a fluid damper, which is the primary cause of their slow insertion time. This was definitely changed after the disaster. (laughs) Something to note is that um, RBMK reactors are actually still in use. They were just modified in lots of cases, like they've just been evolved, but they are actually still in use in some cases.
1: And they had to be modified for yeah, well, very good reasons. A lot
0: of things that happened here <laughs> <It> <laughs> went horribly, horribly wrong.
1: Well, as you'll find out, is that these things originally were not very well built at all.
0: Well, yeah, the same can be said about a lot of things the Soviets built. Anyways, the reactor operates in a helium nitrogen atmosphere. It's about seventy to ninety percent helium and ten to thirty percent nitrogen, and the gas circuit is composed of a compressor, aerosol, and iodine filters. Absorber for carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and ammonia, a holding tank for allowing the gaseous radioactive products to decay before being discharged, an aerosol filter to remove solid decay products, and a ventilator stack, the iconic chim- which is the iconic chimney above the plant building when you see photos of Chernobyl. The gas is injected into the stack from the bottom in a low flow rate and it exits from the standpipe <laughs> of each channel via an individual pipe. The moisture and temperature of the outlet gas is monitored, and an increase in the temperature is an indicator of a coolant leak. The reactor has two independent cooling circuits. Each have four main circulating pumps, two operating and one standby. The cooling water is fed to the reactor through the lower water lines to a common pressure header, which is split to 22 group distribution headers, each feeding 38 to 41 pressure channels to the core where feed water boils. The mixture of steam and water is led by the upper steam lines, one for each pressure channel. From the reactor to the top steam separators which are pairs of thick horizontal drums located inside compartments above the reactor top. Steam is taken from the top of the separators combined and led to the two turbo generators in the turbine hall then to condensers reheated to 165 degrees celsius and pumped by the condensate pumps to deaerators, where remains of the gaseous phase and corrosion inducing gases are removed. The resulting feed water is led to the steam separators by feed water pumps and mixed with the water from them at their outlets. From the bottom of the separators, the feed water is led by 12 downpipes to the suction headers of the main circulation pumps and back into the reactor. The nominal temperature of the cooling water at the inlet of the reactor is about 265 to 270 degrees Celsius, which is about 510 to 518 degrees Fahrenheit. And at the outlet temperature, it's around 280 degrees Celsius, or 545 degrees Fahrenheit. The pressure and inlet temperatures determine the height at which the boiling begins in the reactor. If the cooling temperature is not sufficiently below its boiling point at the system pressure, the boiling starts at the very bottom of the reactor instead of at its higher parts. With few absorbers in the reactor core, the positive void coefficient of the reactor makes the reactor very sensitive to the feed water temperature. Changes were made after Chernobyl because this was a problem, obviously. If coolant temperature is too close to its boiling point, cavitation can occur in the pumps and their operation can become erratic or stop entirely, which is something you definitely don't want. <laughs> there are in any case with nuclear well, in any case with nuclear power, you don't want pumps to stop operating. You want you don't yeah. want anything to stop operating at all, ever. Unless you did it in, like intentionally and other things also stopped. Anyways, there are a number of systems placed in to monitor the reactors. The distribution of power density in the reactor is measured by ionization chambers located inside and outside the core. The physical power density distribution control system. Oh, that was a bit, has sensors inside the core. The reactor control and protection systems use sensors in the core and in the lateral biological shield tank. The external sensors in the tank are located around the reactor middle plane and there are over 100 radial and 12 axial power distribution monitors employing self-powered detectors. Reactivity meters and removable startup chambers are used for monitoring of reactor startup. The total reactor power is recorded as the sum of the currents of the lateral ionization chambers. Moisture and temperature of the gas circulating in the channels is monitored by the pressure tube integrity monitoring system. The Reactor Emergency Protection System, EPS, was designed to shut down the reactor when its operational parameters are exceeded. So this one's really important. The design accounted for the steam collapse in the core when the fuel element temperature falls below 265 degrees Celsius. Coolant vaporization and fuel channels and cold reactor state and sticking of some emergency protection rods. And the slow insertion speed of the control rods, together with their design causing localized positive reactivity as the displacer moves through the lower core, it created a number of possible situations where initiation of the EPS could itself aggravate or cause a reactor runaway. So basically, uh, it was really poorly designed in this sense. Yeah, in some senses, actually activating this protection system could make the situation worse. Which is not ideal. Not the idea for a protection system, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the exact opposite of what it's Seems a little
0: bit counterproductive. Supposed to <laughs> Seems do. a little counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah, so the computer system for calculation of the reactivity margin was calculating data from about 4,000 sources, and its purpose was to assist the operator with steady state control of the reactor. It took about 10 to 15 minutes to cycle through all of the measurements and calculate the results. The operators could disable some safety systems, reset or suppress al- some alarm signals, and bypass autom- automatic scram by attaching patch cables to accessible terminals. The practice was allowed under some circumstances. The reactor is also equipped with a fuel rod leak detector, a scintillation counter detector sensitive to energies of short-lived fission products, is mounted on a special dolly and moved over the outlets of the fuel channels, issuing an alert if increased radioactivity is detected in the steam water flow. The RBMK design was built primarily to be powerful, quick to build, and easy to maintain. This meant that full physical containment structures for each would have been more than double the cost and construction time of each plant. And since design had been certified by the Soviet nuclear science ministry as inherently safe, just going to let that one sink in for a second. Uh, um, (laughs) When operated within established parameters, the Soviet authorities assumed proper adherence to doctrine by workers would make any accident impossible. Again, going to let that sink in for a second. Got a bit of a Titanic situation, only with nuclear power.
1: (laughs) There's that famous saying in the show Chernobyl, and it's that RBMK reactors don't explode.
0: Until they do. (laughs) Additionally, the reactors were designed to allow fuel rods to be changed at full power without shutting down, which doesn't seem safe, both for refueling and for plutonium production. This required large cranes above the core. Since the reactor is already seven meters or 23 feet tall, the cost and difficulty of building a heavy containment structure prevented the building of additional emergency containment structures for pipes on top of the reactor. During the accident, the pressure rose to levels high enough to blow the top off the reactor, breaking open the fuel channels in the process, and starting a massive fire when air air contacted the superheated graphite core. Not ideal. So anyways, that's enough about reactors. So that's just like the important details about the RBMK. Um, But yeah, so construction of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and the nearby city of Pripyat to house workers and their families began in 1970, with Reactor 1 being commissioned in 1977. Pripyat was a secret city for the most part. No one really knew about it. It was the third Soviet uh, nuclear power plant after the Leningrad nuclear power plant and the Kursk nuclear power plant, and the first on Ukrainian soil. The completion of the first reactor in 1977 was followed by Reactor Number 2 in 1978, 3 in 1981, and the infamous number 4 in 1983. Two more blocks, 5 and 6, of more or less the same design, were planned at a site roughly a kilometer from the contiguous buildings of the four older blocks. Reactor 5 was around 70% complete at the time of Block 4's explosion and was scheduled to become online approximately six months later in November of 1986. Spoiler alert, didn't happen. In the aftermath of the disaster, 5 and 6 were suspended and then eventually canceled just days before the third anniversary of the explosion. Six other reactors were planned on the other side of the river. All 12 reactors would be planned to be running through 2010. Reactors three and four were second generation units, whereas one and two were first generation units like those in operation at Kursk. In 1982, there was actually a partial core meltdown in reactor one as a result of a faulty cooling valve remaining closed following maintenance. Once the reactor came online, the uranium in the fuel channel overheated and ruptured. The damage was comparatively minor and no one was killed in the accident, fortunately. Due to the negligence of the operators, the accident was not noticed until several hours later, resulting in significant release of radiation in the form of fragments of uranium dioxide and several other radioactive isotopes escaping from the steam with steam from the reactor via the ventilation stack. Despite this and the cleanup taking place, the accident was not made public until several years later, despite cleanups in and around the power station in Pripyat. So, like, just random people cleaning up and nothing was ever said. The reactor and was repaired and put back into operation after eight months. So a bit of foreshadowing there as well. Yeah. It's all was not well in Chernobyl.
1: Yes. In general. Well, yeah. Speaking of foreshadowing, the Americans had their own incident before all of this mm-hmm. that, we're, that we need to talk about because the Soviets played up the hell out of this <laughs> because they're any any way that they could be like point the finger be like stupid americans they they did it
0: oh yeah well i mean the americans did the same thing so it was like that's you know it was
1: very much the the cold war was a war of tit for tat
0: yeah exactly
1: like schoolyard tit for tat
0: spider-man meme
1: (laughs) yeah exactly
0: that was the cold war
1: (laughs) yeah exactly so just very briefly, and this is going to seem really strange that I'm bringing this up, but on March 16th, 1979, a film known as The China Syndrome was released in theaters. The story involves a group of television journalists who work to expose a cover-up of unsafe practices at a nuclear power plant outside of Los Angeles. Basically, shit hits the fan, and then it turns out that everyone's like, oh, the journalists are right, blah, 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 blah. Not a terrible movie, not the greatest movie. The film received a lot of backlash from the nuclear power industry who labeled it as quote unquote character assassination and they're calling it nothing but fantasy and like this could never happen. However, it was received well by critics and moviegoers and it ended up being, it, it did fairly well. However, no one would know that 12 days after its release, the story would nearly come true. Three Mile Island nuclear generating station was a plant that's located in Londonderry Township, Pennsylvania. It comprised of two units commissioned in 1974 and 1978 respectively. It received its name as it is three miles upstream from Middletown, Pennsylvania. Fun fact, I've actually seen this power plant. We drove by it, but like, like this is back when I was with Cirque du Soleil. For those of you who don't know, I toured with Cirque du Soleil for two years. And uh, we were driving to Ohio, we were in Philadelphia, we were driving to Ohio, and we had to pass by and we saw the nuclear power station.
0: Nice. I actually toured a nuclear power plant in Finland, but anyways, continue. That's cool. I'll talk about that later.
1: Yeah, no worries. So on March 28th, 1979, at 4am, a mechanical or electrical failure, it's still uncertain which one it was. Inhibited the feed water pumps from delivering water to the steam generators, which are used to remove heat from the reactor core. As a result, the turbine generator and then the reactor of Unit 2 shut down. Hmm, This is bad. (laughs) This caused the pressure to build up in the primary system, thus, resulting in the pilot operated relief valve to open. The valve is designed to close automatically once the pressure is released but it became stuck open. The control room instruments indicated the valve was open and so workers were unaware of the issue. The control panels began receiving and relaying misinformation due to the issues. It showed the core was properly covered with water and so the staff assumed that this was the case. In an attempt to fix what they believed to be the actual issue, staff uncovered the core. As a result, the coolant pumps began vibrating rapidly and shut off. Automatically, the emergency cooling water started to pump into the primary system, further increasing the pressure to dangerous levels. As a result, the main cooling water was blocked or vaporized into the air, while the emergency cooling water was diminished. Water levels in the pressure vessel dropped, and soon the core began to overheat. This is what causes a meltdown. When you hear a nuclear meltdown, this is what causes a meltdown. It's when the core literally superheats and it literally does yeah, melt. Not great. After a shift change at 6 a.m., the next shift noticed an, a high temperature reading in the pilot-operated relief valve tailpipe and so used a block valve or backup valve in order to shut off the coolant venting out of the pilot-operated relief valve. By this point, 120,000 liters or 32,000 gallons had leaked. 45 minutes later, or 165 minutes after the problems began, radiation alarms activated after contaminated water finally reached the detectors. Readings indicated the radiation level in the primary coolant water had reached 300 times the normal levels, causing severe contamination. By this point, the reactor had reached partial meltdown. Just before 7 a.m., a site emergency was declared, and then a half hour later, a general emergency was declared. The Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency, or PEMA, was informed of the situation, and they, in turn, contacted local and state authorities. The following day, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or NRC, informed the public there was no public danger. However, by that evening, the officials were told the reactors suffered more damage than initially believed. On March 30th, a release of radiation occurred and the NRC sent a warning to anyone in a 10-mile radius to remain indoors. Hours later, they advised pregnant women and small children to evacuate the area while everyone was to remain inside. Kind of no different to we're having to remain yeah, inside now. Much
0: different than right now.
1: On site, hydrogen bubbles in the reactor were risking an explosion of the core. This led To officials to finally admit the gravity of the situation and realized a complete evacuation of everyone within a 20 mile radius might be necessary. This included 600,000 people over six surrounding counties. By this time, 40% of the population living within 15 miles of the plant had evacuated on their own, not willing to take any risks. By April 4th, officials determined the hydrogen bubble threatening the explosion would not burst and the evacuation of pregnant women and children was was lifted by April 9th. In the aftermath, Pennsylvania Governor Dick Thornburgh came under massive public scrutiny due to his perceived hesitation to order an evacuation, particularly of pregnant women and young children. Analysis of the surrounding area thankfully found not enough radioactive material was released to contaminate the food supply, the animals, or the population. To this day, no official health effects have been recorded as a result of the disaster. The Pennsylvania Department of Health continued to monitor the health of 30,000 people within five miles of the plant, but discontinued this after 18 years after no ill effect was detected amongst any of them. However, independent studies have found nine cancer-related deaths between 1980 and 1984 in the area out of 450 people. This doesn't sound like much, but this is seven times higher than normal rate. Cleanup began in August 1979 and lasted until December 1993, costing $1 billion. The accident saw a decline in the construction of new reactors between 1980 and 1998, with new sites either being delayed construction or canceled completely. Only in 2012 was a new plant officially authorized for construction 35 years following the accident. The damage and contamination to unit two was too great for repair and recommissioning and was ordered permanently closed. Its decommissioning date is listed officially as March 28, 1979, the same day as the accident. Unit 1 continued operation until September 20th, 2019 at noon. Both Units 1 and 2 are currently awaiting dismantling. So that was the Americans' brush with that sort of nuclear disaster. I mean, there's been yeah, other.
0: There's been uh, at least like, 56 since Chernobyl in the United States. Yeah.
1: Um, but not to, and that's not counting the times that the United States have accidentally dropped nuclear on bombs. Places.
0: On themselves, on thems- too. On
1: yeah. themselves. <laughs> yeah. There's currently a nuclear bomb somewhere in the ice of Greenland yeah. that they They're have dying. no idea where it is.
0: They're just going to hope to God that one in Greenland stays frozen.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. And then there's one off the coast of North Carolina that they have no idea where it is. One bo- one bomber had to jettison both of its cargo without arming it so they wouldn't explode. They found one laying in a tree and one is somewhere stuck in the ground somewhere. So the solution was the government bought a huge area surrounding where they think it was (laughs) they think it landed and are just like we'll find it. (laughs) At some point no one's allowed to own this. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) But yeah there is like concern. There was genuine concern that uh, those bombs would explode and if the one in North Carolina would have exploded it would have destroyed that whole coastline including where a lot of people now. live but because they aren't they weren't armed mm-hmm. they won't explode I mean there is still risk of radiation leaking but the good news is that half-life of nuclear bombs isn't the highest so fingers crossed. I guess that's how the united states has gotten to this point literally
0: (laughs) a couple big ones here and there but
1: yeah they've had big ones couple world war ii i mean they had help
0: they came late to the party
1: but since no no they didn't have help they
0: were the help (laughs) like they came to the party after yeah anyway it's neither here nor there yeah so we've discussed the soviet situation a lot at this point we've discussed it in other episodes a little bit there's not much more to say other than uh Just kind of talk about the people who took over a little bit. Brezhnev died in 1982, and at the time of his death, the USSR was kind of on its last legs economically, and that was abundantly clear to everybody in the world because the USSR had been importing grain from the United States for almost a decade at that point. And at the same time as that was happening, it just everything seemed destined to fail because the economy was just crumbling and. the system in the Soviet Union seemed so entrenched that it was just never going to change. The military consumed most of the budget and the economy and consumer goods were just really not a priority, which really started to become a problem. Um, Soviet citizens through the 80s started to really, like, I don't know, eventually kind of take note of the fact that there was just a large gap between them and the rest of the world when it came to consumer goods and things like that. More and more Western media, and western culture had filtered into the soviet union at this point there was a lot more dissidents and so yeah people were kind of discontent with that and the fact that the defense that the military took over like the majority of the budget wasn't really great um so when brezhnev died yuri Andropov took over briefly before konstantin chernenko both of them were ultimately brezhnev cronies you may remember andropov's name we discussed him During the Soviet-Afghan War episode, he was the head of the KGB through most of this. So he really leveraged his power as a spy to become the leader. And it was very obvious how he got there to everybody. And the other reason, too, is that he pandered to the military. He used his KGB connections, and he pandered to the military because he said he wouldn't cut the defense budget. And Chernenko said that he might just like a little bit. And uh, ultimately, they both discussed wanting to actually change things in the Soviet Union. But... Didn't really do anything about that, the fact that they were actually in power was kind of a sign that change was never going to happen anyways, because they were both old as hell and, and sick. They were both ultimately hindered by both their age and poor health, but Andropov, while he did last, his domestic policy leaned pretty heavily towards restoring discipline and order to Soviet society because, you know, when things are going poorly, we need to restore order. Even though it's not the people's fault, the economy is trash. Instead of a radical political and economic reform, he promoted a small degree of candor in politics and mild economic experiments, like, taken in the 1960s. So essentially, instead of, like, changing the system and actually fixing anything, he decided maybe we'll be nicer in politics and we'll be a little, like, slightly more transparent, just like a titch. Just like like a titch. And also we'll like maybe try something that worked in the sixties. Eh, could work again. Who knows it's worked before it's, it's kind of, it's not novel. It's not, you know, it's not reinvent the wheel here. <laughs> he was trying to trying to affect change without doing anything really is what he was doing. Um, and in 1982, as a result, the country witnessed the work, worst economic performance since 19 or sorry, since world war two, not ideal. The eighties weren't, weren't fun for them. Actually nor were the nineties. Um Andropov launched an anti corruption drive that reached into the high or reached high into the government and party ranks. This was obviously not popular with people who were being hunted down by him. Gorbachev, I think, was cool with it though. It's like the one thing under Andropov he didn't mind. And Gorbachev was actually very heavily involved through this. Gorbachev was often at general secretary meetings for Andropov because Andropov was way too sick to be there. He was he was in charge like he's a figurehead pretty much in the end though his uh his anti-corruption plan was not successful anyways he did favor strict top-down planning but he also recognized that the size of the soviet economy just made that really impractical uh he didn't really do anything to change that but he just at least recognized it i guess which is something um in 1984 he died and then chernenko who he narrowly beat out to become leader the first time now became leader who was he was also in poor health he was suffering from emphysema which You don't survive emphysema. It kills you eventually. (laughs) Yeah. It's not a thing you survive. And (laughs) yeah. As a result, he was actually unable to really play any active role in policymaking. So while he was there, he wasn't really there. Everyone else else (laughs) was doing stuff. And Chernenko was the leader. Functionally, that was it. Right. But he did actually bring some significant policy changes around. He ended in Dropov's investigations into corruption, obviously. Um, he did advocate for more investment into consumer goods and services and agriculture, so that was positive. He recognized the discontent and just the like head and shoulders distance between them and the rest of the world when it came to consumer goods and things like that. He also called for a reduction in the Communist Party's micromanagement of the economy and greater attention to public opinion. So, you know, Chernenko, radical change man apparently. But at the same time, not really, because the oppression of dissidents by the KGB also increased. So like, you can have a little bit more freedom, but we're also going to oppress you harder. It's all about balance, right? Give you some here, take some there. Got to maintain balance. So neither did good things for the country, it's pretty safe to say. But the transition of power from Brezhnev to Andropov was notably the first time in Soviet history where a change of power happened completely peacefully with no one being imprisoned, killed, or forced from office. So, had that going for Dang. it. Um, See, so yeah, eventually, Chernenko also dies. Because <laughs> emphysema, again, you don't survive that. And finally, the party was like, okay, Gorbachev, you get your chance now. And um, he came to power during this time. Which wasn't great. And as we talked about, he was... <laughs> oh, God. Like, Chernobyl happened really around the time he came to power. Like, he wasn't in power long. And it was a... Yeah, this was a really important event, actually, for Gorbachev and that it happened very early on in his time, and it would actually forever change his opinions on the Soviet regime and how he handled things, because it was one of the first major events that he had to deal with, ultimately. And the failures of the Soviet system were fully exposed in every way. It was ugly. And he had to deal with them. It basically helped solidify his belief that further changes like Glasnost and Perestroika were needed. That There was a lot of, you know, this incident, I guess, you know, made him come to appreciate the scale of incompetence and cover-ups in the Soviet Union. Obviously, always knew they existed, didn't realize like just how bad it was. You know, like we talked, I mentioned the 1982 partial meltdown at Chernobyl. I mean, part of the reason that no one talked about it for seven years or however long was because Andropov was in charge and he just cracked down on people and no one knew anything and they weren't allowed to know and I'll talk about it later, but Chernobyl was different in that it was kind of a brutal exposure of everything to everyone. Gorbachev really leaned into transparency at this time because he realized just how bad it was. And I think it probably scared the hell out of a lot of people. I'm sure I would be terrified. It's kind of like the play. It's, it's like Plato's cave. It's yeah. like you've been in the dark this whole time and all of a sudden you are being exposed to the light and it is brutal.
1: Or in this case to radiation. Yeah,
0: Specifically in this case. Yes um but yeah uh Chernobyl forever actually changed changed Gorbachev and uh I'll talk about it later but possibly really was like a key event in ending the Soviet Union and with that that's really all I have to say on this this domestic situation we've talked about it pretty much at length and we're going to talk about it a lot more next episode when we talk about the end of the Soviet Union so
1: yeah Um, for sure that's
0: kind of the and I'll talk about a little bit at the end of like Gorbachev and, and Glasnost but yeah Uh, the situation in the 80s was pretty bleak and chernobyl really didn't help
1: yeah i love how they're planning stuff as far ahead as 2010
0: i know it's my favorite thing about like reading it's my favorite thing about reading about like like reading nuclear like materials about like nuclear bombs and material like stuff that was written in like the 50s and 60s is because they're having to plan you know like decades and decades and decades ahead and now it's like we're in those decades and it's like huh yeah but it's nothing like they imagined (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, no it really isn't, except in fallout. Yeah. So now we get to the now we get to the main event oh of this whole podcast. And the ironic thing about this is the accident was a result of a safety test.
0: An unsafe safety test.
1: Yeah, exactly. So some important people you need to know, Victor Brkanov, the plant manager. There's Nikolai Fomin, the chief engineer, Anatoly Dyatlov, who is the deputy chief engineer, Alexander Akimov, the unit shift chief, and Leonid Topdanov, the senior engineer for management of the reactor, uh, who was an SIUR trainee. So the test, it was scheduled for the early hours of April 26th, having been delayed several times They've been trying to do this test for months and they kept having it delayed. It was scheduled to be done on April 26th, but it had to be delayed again, or April 25th, excuse me, but it had to be delayed again due to the grid controllers from Kiev denying permission due to the end of the month quotas. Because should this test go on, there's less electricity going to Kiev and therefore the less output in the factories, which uh, in a Soviet state, is bad.
0: <laughs> not great. No, you don't want that.
1: No, no. So the purpose of the test was to see if the reactor turbines could continue to spin long enough to continue to power the emergency water pumps until the backup diesel generators kicked in in the event of a shutdown. Dyatlov was chosen to supervise the test, and he and he agreed that they would just simply delay the test into the evening when no one was working in Kiev, and it would not disrupt anything. The sudden change of time for the test did not provide enough preparation time for the night shift to get ready to perform the test. Most of them found out as they were going to getting to work that they were doing this test that they've never done before and had no idea how to do. So basically their entire shift, they're looking through manuals of being like, okay, what am I supposed to do? for the best, yeah. Basically, yeah. Furthermore, they did not they were not given proper instructions on how to perform the test because even the manuals were very not great.
0: Are, are we surprised?
1: No, I don't think this test had actually ever been done before. Probably not. Anywhere.
0: I think though, well, because so, so reactor number four was a second generation reactor. So this test probably had never been done on that reactor.
1: Yeah. I don't think it's been done on any, any oh, of the reactors. So not. I'm not sure. Part of what this test required was to bring the reactor output down to 700 megawatts. As part of the test, the emergency safety systems for Reactive 4 were disconnected, which doesn't, is not a good idea. So at around 12.05 a.m., the reactor output reached 720 megawatts. However, the reactor's production of xenon-135, which is a neutron absorber inhibiting reactivity, And the reactor's inability to burn off this byproduct due to the low power caused the power to continue to decrease, despite no one manually decreasing the power. Literally no one was touching the bar and it was still going down and down and down. This is what is known as reactor poisoning. When xenon 135 decays faster than the neutron flux can burn off, the reactor is recorded to have dropped as low as 30 megawatts, which is basically a reactor stall. At this point, Akimov began to argue with Dyatlov over the safety of the test. Referring to the manual, Akimov pointed out how it was potentially dangerous to conduct such a a test at anything lower than 700 megawatts. However, Dyatlov was determined to finish the test and insisted the test could be safely conducted at 200 megawatts. Outranked, Akimov relented, albeit reluctantly, and was forced to proceed. At 1.05 a.m., extra water pumps were turned on, which increased water flow to the reactor. With more coolant flowing, the cooling water was not given enough time to release the accumulated heat through the cooling towers, increasing the approach to nucleate boiling temperature.
0: Can you say something really quick?
1: Yeah.
0: Him being outranked and just like giving up kind of is something that's really common in the kind of culture of the Soviet Union, because there's a very strong top-down culture and like military culture. And so there's not a lot of room for challenging people. And so, yeah. No. I'm sure none of them really were, um, but in general, that culture exists. Well, I'm sure some of them were too, but like
1: F- Fomin and B- Bukhanov definitely were were. Diat- they were all arrogant men. It's just that Diatlov wasn't like screaming and throwing books at his, his staff. Like that's just he was just like. So yeah, just so people know, he wasn't as he was arrogant and. He definitely deserved to be punished, but he wasn't a raging asshole.
0: I imagine there's probably a lot of arrogance amongst nuclear scientists.
1: <laughs> if possibly. So an alarm was triggered at 1.19 a.m. due to the lowest steam pressure in the steam separators. As a result, the crew shut down two circulation pumps in order to decrease the amount of feedwater flow, hoping this would increase steam pressure. They also removed more of the manual control rods in order to maintain power. It should also be noted that people in other parts of the reactor building of, Rea- of Unit Four were not aware that this test was going on. Hmm. So that's a problem. That
0: seems <laughs> safe.
1: So people in the steam room did not know that this test was going on, and they're like, "What's happening? Why are all these weird, Why are we getting all these weird readings?" At 1.19 a.m., topped it off blocked the automatic shutdown due to low water levels and raised power 7%, which required the removal of all but six control rods. At 1.23 a.m., the test officially began. Engineers shut down the turbine engine. This prevented the reactor from receiving and the required cooling water, causing the power to surge. One major flaw in the RBMK reactors is that they have a positive temperature coefficient, which means materials experience an increase in electrical resistance when the temperature is raised, i.e. It, re- it reacts faster. In most countries, this was and still is illegal. At 12340, realizing a meltdown was entirely possible, one of the engineers pressed AZ-5 button, which is used to shut down the reactor completely. So when AZ-5 was initiated, all of the control rods were simultaneously pushed into the reactor in order to shut down the reactor. The rods are mostly made of boron, which is something that helps reduce reactivity, which initiates a shutdown, except for the tips. The tips of the rods are made of graphite. So at this point, the the graphite tips were superheated beyond comprehension really, and it instantly vaporized the cooling water into steam, expanding and rupturing the fuel rod channels. The graphite tips, having been fixed in position, continued to rapidly accelerate the air reactivity. Within three seconds of becoming fixed, reactor output jumped over 530 megawatts. Readings indicated that the reactor had reached 4,650 degrees Celsius, which is approximately the temperature of the sun's surface. It is unknown how high the output reached, but the final confirmed reading was somewhere around 120 times its maximum power, which is around 30,000 megawatts. By this point, the reaction had become so fast, it reached the energy density of TNT. The moment it reached this density... At 1.23.45 a.m., an explosion blew the 1,000-ton lid off the reactor, as if it was a piece of paper. This, in turn, exposed hydrogen and superheated graphite to oxygen, which caused a graphite fire. Two to three seconds after the first explosion, a second larger explosion occurred, sending fragments of the core into the air, which included highly radioactive graphite. Night shift pump operator Valery Valeri was is believed to have been killed instantly by the explosion as he was literally right next to the lid. One would hope he died instantly. I really, really. hope
0: he did. I'm sure he did. Yeah. How do you, I mean, I don't think there's a way you doubt.
1: No. His body has still not been recovered I'm pretty because sure it was just vaporized. It, is, it probably was, yeah. But if there is a body, it still hasn't been recovered because it is completely covered in rubble and radioactive. I'm sure, material. he was probably just
0: vaporized, honestly.
1: Hopefully, yeah. So a graphite fire began burning with extreme intensity from the exposed core, which in turn began spewing radioactive smoke into the air. And I'm not making up that time frame. It literally exploded at one, two, three, four, five. Yep. Which is nuts. Yep. As if matters couldn't get any worse, asphalt and bitumen had been used to construct the roof of the reactor building and the turbine hall. This material is highly combustible and the explosion set the roof on fire. In the control room, workers scrambled to assess the damage unaware the reactor itself had exploded. Dyatlov rushed to the backup control room after he realized they had no control within their control room of anything and he engaged the AZ-5 button there. Then disconnected the control rods servo, servo drives. While traveling to and from the backup control room, he saw the collapsed roof, fires, and also noticed oil spilling into the turbine hall. Once he returned to the control room, he ordered Akimov to call the fire brigade. At this point, they didn't know that the core had exploded, and they thought a hydrogen fuel tank had exploded and set the roof on fire. So right now, their main priority became: we need to put pump cooling water into the reactor to make sure it does not overheat and melt down. Yeah. Before this moment, no reactor had ever exploded anywhere. There had been meltdowns and near meltdowns. Yeah. Which is not an ex- which people think is an explosion, it's not. It's literally just a m- reactor melting down.
0: Literally melting. Yeah.
1: And it and it is so literally this like when a reactor melts down, it is so hot that it burns through everything yeah. and anything everything that it touches basically melts into it and
0: it becomes like it basically becomes a self-contained like self-fueled fire (laughs) like it's not really a fire but yeah
1: yeah it's just literally molten radiation just burning through everything so they didn't know that this any of this was happening i should note meltdown had not occurred at this point it was just a fire this thing was burning.
0: Which is obviously still not ideal.
1: No, <laughs> in fact, I would say this is a lot actually, worse. Yeah, it's a lot worse because it's like uh, one of the lines in the Chernobyl series is the guy says, "It'll keep burning and will not stop. It'll keep on burning and spewing its poison until the entire continent is dead."
0: Yeah, meltdowns a lot. I, a meltdown is actually much easier to contain.
1: Yeah, fire not so much because well, I'll get to that in yeah. a moment. So. Alexander Yovchenko was in his office when the explosions occurred, and had he not been in his office, he probably would have been killed. He recalled his walls slightly caved and the door was blown in, spewing milky gray radioactive dust into the room. As he exited, he was met by a pump c- operator who was badly burned and in shock. The operator begged Yovchenko to save Hodimchuk, but it was found to be impossible an impossible task. The burn man soon died from his injuries, probably mercifully so. Yeah. Actually, no, not probably, mercifully so. Yuvinchenko and foreman Yuri Tregub ran outside the facility and looked at the extent of the damage. Before them, there was a massive hole where the half of the building once stood. So, the pictures you see of that, that's what they saw. They were the first people to really see it. Yeah. And this is what Yuvinchenko is quoted as saying quote from where i stood i could see a beam, huge beam of projected light flooding up into infinity from the reactor it was like a laser light caused by the ionization in the air it was light bluish and it was very beautiful end quote so according to sources the beam of light resembled uh those really high powered searchlights that kind of point up in the sky yeah. That's what it looked like. But this is being caused naturally by ionization of the air, which means that the air is radioactive. Literally, the air is glowing.
0: It's not good. No. <laughs> it's pretty, but not good.
1: It's extremely pretty, yeah. That's the weird thing is that, just, like...
0: It's gorgeous.
1: There's beauty and stuff like that, right. yeah. Yuvanchenko and Turghub joined Kurdistev and Poristev in attempting to manually lower the seize control rods as they would still believe the reactor was intact. Yuvinchenko forced a jammed door open and held it as the other three rushed through. The three eventually rushed out after seeing that there was nothing there. This is basically the first people to realize the reactor's gone. As a result of holding the door open, Yuvincenko suffered beta and gamma burns on his left shoulder, hip, and calf from radioactive dust on the door. The other three were not so lucky. They received a fatal dose pretty quickly. Dyatlov rushed to the Block 3 control room and ordered the crew there to shut down Reactor 3. Night shift chief Yuri Bagasarov concurred with the decision, but both were overruled by chief engineer Nikolai Fomin. Instead, respirators and potassium iodide tablets were handed out. At 5 a.m., Begadorsov went against orders and shut down Reactor 3, leaving only the emergency cooling system's operators on shift to make sure that a similar situation would not happen in Reactor 3. At 1.26 a.m. paramilitary fire station number two receives the first fire alarm. The station is located on the plant's grounds so the firefighters were quick to respond. They make their way up the ruined roof. Noticing the amount of exposed electrical cables and wires, they resort to throwing sand onto the fire instead of using water. Now you guys have already heard the chilling audio at the beginning of this episode you remember Lindsay? Mm-hmm. so that is it that is an, the actual call to the fire department be, from the fire department to the dispatcher and uh, for those of you who are wondering what it says it says dispatch hello is this vpch2 which means military fire station 2 firefighter yes dispatcher what's burning over there Firefighter, there was an explosion at the main building, 3rd and 4th, between the 3rd and 4th block. Dispatcher, are there people there? Firefighter, yes. Commander, wake up the compound. Firefighter, getting them, got the boss out of bed. Commander, well, get everyone, everyone, the whole officer compound, get the officers up. Just go, like, going back and listening to that audio, it's been dubbed the scariest phone call ever made. Yeah. And it is absolutely terrifying to listen to. And it's terrifying because you can hear in their voice, they realize that the situation is a lot bigger than those in the building do. Firefighters from the surrounding area, including both civilian and military fire brigades, arrived at around 1.28 a.m. and began efforts to extinguish the flames. None of them were aware how severe the disaster was and of the radiation in the air. Many of the first responders complained of tasting metal, not knowing this was a result of the radiation within the air. One firefighter is reported to have picked up a piece of graphite unaware of what it was. He tossed it aside and despite only holding it for a few seconds, began suffering extreme pain in his hand. And once they took his glove off, his entire hand was, being burnt, was had been severely burned by radiation. It should also be noted that a lot of these men had just been recently woken up. Many of them were not wearing their protective gear and some of them were still in their pajamas.
0: Yeah, not great.
1: No. At 2 4, 15 a.m., members of the local Soviet held an emergency meeting with Fomin and Bukhadov. They decided to block all incoming and outgoing traffic to Pripyat and police began setting up roadblocks around the city. Again, none of them were wearing protective gear because... Well, Fuck logic, right? Yeah,
0: pretty much. Well, and the government was not about to tell everybody what they were running into.
1: Well, they still refuse to believe that the core exploded. Yeah. They're like, oh, it's just a like any contamination that people are getting, all these people are sickers from contaminated feed water. They'll be fine. Yeah,
0: it's just a fire.
1: That's basically it. It's just a fire from the hydrogen tank. We just got to put out the fire and make sure water's pumping into the core. At 3.30 a.m., Akimov began experiencing the initial signs of acute radiation syndrome. He was relieved at 6 a.m. However, Akimov and Toptenov decided to stay at the plant. The two men went to manually open the valves from the feed water room. They were in a combination of fuel and water that went as high as their knees, taking several hours to open each valve due to their weakened state from radiation exposure. Both men received a dose of 15 grays, which is bad, (laughs) and were evacuated to hospital immediately after exiting the plant. All fires, except for the core, of course, were extinguished by 6.35 a.m. By that point, several plant workers and first responders are beginning to suffer from the initial stages of acute radiation syndrome. This includes vomiting, fatigue, fainting, and loss of muscle control. Many of those on site also suffer radiation burns that resemble a sunburn. It looks like a very pronounced sunburn on the affected area. And it's usually a brown or red color. So minor-ish, look, minor-ish burns or radiation exposure burns are brown, kind of like you have a tan, yeah. whereas extreme ones are red.
0: Which is actually comparable to a sunburn because when you think about it, like a tan is technically a sunburn. You have technically burnt the first layer of your skin off with when you get a tan, so like the sun is actually just a different. It's actually just it is radiation. It's just different.
1: Yeah, and from what I read, most of the time, those who have the red radiation burns, like from actual radiation, they're dead. Oh yeah, you're toast. Yeah. Quite literally. <laughs> toast.
0: <laughs> Pun not intended, but.
1: <laughs> yeah. It
0: worked out. Worked out though.
1: <laughs> yeah. Too no. soon. Too soon anyway <laughs> so Diatlov has at this point been completely overcome with radiation poisoning is suffering extreme fatigue and vomiting he's taken to a nearby medical unit and it is revealed he received a dose of 390 REM which results in about a 50 50 chance of survival in the first 30 days spoiler alert he survived Of course, there's a bigger problem, a bigger threat than a fucking fire. And that is the ionizing radiation levels had reached as high as 5.6 Ronkins per second, which is about 20,000 Ronkins per hour. For perspective, a fatal dose is 500 Ronkins over five hours. Due to the decimeter capable of detecting... Oh, for those of you who don't know, decimeters are what detect radiation... They're not Geiger counters, but they detect ronkins in the air. And so the, uh, due to the dosimeter capable of detecting a thousand ronkins per second being buried by the rebel, the crew only could only theorize what the levels were and settled at 3.6 ronkins per hour. Which, as they say in the Chernobyl miniseries, it's not great, but it's not terrible. It also wasn't true.
0: <laughs> that is pretty fucking terrible. It's, yeah. Objectively.
1: Yeah. <laughs> The residents of Pripyat remained unaware of the extent of the disaster and continued with their lives. By the afternoon of April 26th, dozens of people were reportedly falling ill, suffering from severe vomiting, headaches, metallic taste, and massive coughing fits. Literally, the smoke, the wind blew the smoke over the forest to Pripyat. And Belarus. And Belarus, yeah. Yeah. I haven't found, I have heard there was, apparently it did, almost instantly turn change the colors of the leaves of the trees.
0: Yeah, so I talked about that actually a bit later. Um in the okay. impact, but yeah, there's actually a whole whole forest around it.
1: Yeah, but it apparently like instantly Yeah, no, so instantly. Like not almost instantly, which is insane. Yeah, like insane. so instantly like, it, it l-
0: caused the whole forest to turn red and die. Like everything turned yeah. so it's called the red forest because everything turned brown and died instantly.
1: Right. But apparently like over like below where the cloud was yeah. there's just a long line of trees that looked like it was in autumn yeah. it's which is which they showed that in the miniseries and i didn't think that was true and i looked so it up the, and it's true forest it's yeah it, yeah it's just in, in insane that it did that but <laughs> it made it look but yeah the, but i'm like i know <laughs> i thought it was made up i just thought it was made up like oh they're doing that for okay. You just repeated effect, what I which said is that's what I was like
0: I, I know yeah. <laughs> um no yeah, okay. no that's it yeah no it was like the whole whole forest like a large swath of it too
1: yeah I know about the red forest yeah well well you'll talk about uh, it so
0: it's actually well I'll, I've talked about it now that's it that's actually that's right. all there, that's all there is to say about it honestly
1: okay I don't know if it's still the most highly radioactive place in the world but probably
0: uh, actually, I actually it is I assume... I'm pretty sure it is also I saw a news article like on Monday is that uh, radiation is spiking at Chernobyl
1: right now. I heard about that too. So last fucking thing we need. Yeah,
0: it's good timing. At this moment.
1: One other problem is that the Chernobyl plant was run directly by authorities in Moscow and therefore the Ukrainian government wasn't even informed properly of the disaster.
0: Neither neither was Moscow.
1: Yeah. (laughs) To put it into perspective, Kiev, the capital, is in the same oblast as Chernobyl. Like, they're not that far away from each yeah. other. Initially, residents were assured all was well. However, on April 27, 36 hours after the explosions, Soviet officials began evacuating the 115,000 people from Pripyat and its surrounding towns and villages. They are told it is a temporary measure, but most have not returned to, to home to this day. And Pripyat remains abandoned. The following day, a massive exclusion zone was established, initially only 10 kilometers in radius, and then upgraded to 30 kilometers. Today, the exclusion zone covers 2,600 kilometers squared. Now, there's still the problem of how do we extinguish the core, because the core is still burning (laughs) at this point. All the other fires are gone, but the core is still burning. So despite the core literally being on, on fire, they couldn't just simply pour water on it to douse it because as soon as because the it is so hot and burning like literally, this is at this point, this is the hottest burning object on Earth. As soon as because of the extreme heat, the water would instantly vaporize and it wouldn't even touch it. Yeah. The smoke, dust, and debris released by the fire carried large amounts of radiation further contaminating the surrounding area, which is what what we just, with radioactive isotopes like we just said. Most are toxic to humans and some are able to move quickly in the environment, which is really bad. The solution to fighting the fire was to dump tens of thousands of tons of boron, sand, clay, and lead. The sand was used to extinguish the fire itself while the boron was theorized it would squelch the nuclear reaction. Helicopters were used to drop the neutralizer onto the core, which was an extremely dangerous job. Today, it has been found most of the combination did not even reach the core. However, enough was dropped on it to extinguish the fire by May 10th, and the fire was, finally the core was out by May 10th. But yeah, it was burning that long.
0: Oh
1: yeah. Another thing I should note is it is true that a helicopter did crash at Chernobyl, uh, it wasn't one of the helicopters putting out the fire, but it did get. It did happen. And it did
0: get footage, actually. Well, there's footage of it, too.
1: And it did crash by accidentally getting too close to the crane and hitting the wires, and it just went down. Everyone on board was killed. Like instantly. There's a big helicopter, too. One of those. Sikorsky. Like, yeah, it was a Sikorsky. It wasn't a Hind, but it was, like, one of those transport tank-ish yeah. helicopters. They're big. Like, they can c- carry a lot. On April 28th, an alarm from the Forsmark plant, which is north of Stockholm, Sweden, sounded after it detected radiation. Initially fearing a leak, the plant crew quickly scrambled to find the source, but were stunned to find it was not from their location. Radioactive particles were found on the grass outside, and when analyzed, it was determined to be a byproduct of Soviet reactor fuel. This became the first indication of the disaster to the outside world and even within the Soviet republics. The Swedish government contacted the Soviets who denied knowledge of anything. After the Swedes threatened to inform the International Atomic Energy Agency, the Soviets finally admitted the disaster had occurred at Chernobyl. And this is like literally the first time that the Soviets admitted, admitted anything. And it was because of the Swedes yeah. who are Quite a ways away, figured it out.
0: They were like, hey, excuse me, what the fuck is going on here?
1: Yeah. So there's, I'm going to briefly touch on two characters that are important. First one is Valeri Lagarsov. And he was the first deputy director of the Kachanov Institute of Atomic Energy at the time of the disaster. He was chosen as one of the key members of the government commission tasked with investigating the cause of the disaster and to determine the best course of action to mitigate the aftermath. The next one was Boris Shabina, and he was the deputy chairman of the USSR Council of Ministers at the time of the disaster. And he was in charge of the commission dealing with the disaster itself. And these are the two men that are the central characters of the HBO miniseries. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go too much into detail because uh, Lindsay talks about the cleanup effort and that that's what they were mostly in charge of. What I am going to talk about is acute radiation syndrome briefly. So what it, what acute radiation syndrome, it's also known as radiation poisoning, like commonly.
0: Colloquially, it's called that.
1: Yeah, colloquially. It causes nausea and vomiting, headaches, fever, dizziness and disorientation, weakness, hair loss, diarrhea, and decreasing in blood pressure. Now, massive radiation dosages results in the destruction of the cells of the body, leading to necrosis of the skin. This usually causes death within two weeks to a month and sometimes longer. Consistent dosages won't destroy the cells outright, but it will cause significant damage to a person to lead to different types of cancer most commonly leukemia, multiple myeloma, and thyroid cancer. And the reason why, like people were wondering why thyroid cancer... I think
0: multiple myeloma is what be? my grandpa had. Oh, really? Commonly, commonly, it only affects men over the age of 65 unless caused by like radiation.
1: And then the, the reason why it's mostly like it causes commonly thyroid cancer is because your thyroid literally absorbs the radiation. All of it, Yeah. Yeah. 30 individuals died in the immediate explosions and from ARS in the months after, including Akimov on May 11th and Toptenoff on May 14th. Both men, along with Honamchuk and another five of their colleagues, were pos- posthumously awarded the Order of Courage. I cannot stress how awful dying from acute radiation syndrome is. Like It's literally like you're rotting alive.
0: If anyone's seen K-19, The Widowmaker, they do a reasonably good job of depicting it.
1: They depict it in Chernobyl pretty reasonably as well. It's not fun. Like one of the wives of one of the firemen described, this is disgusting and I apologize, described how she would have to keep clearing her husband's mouth of vomit and how he would defecate like 20 times a day. Mm -hmm. It's awful. Like it is an excruciating way to die. I've been unfortunate enough to see pictures of a Japanese man not from Fukushima, but no, from from the bombs. From no, it wasn't from the bombs either. It's from he was a, sci- a nuclear scientist, mm. and uh, the Japanese government kept him alive to study the um, the the, co- the effects of acute radiation sickness. And it is awful. This man's story. He survived for four months. That's awful. Going through this, and they resuscitated him several times. God damn it. Yeah, I don't have a lot nice to say about the Japanese government in this episode, particularly later on. Yeah, but that's just the start. So, unfortunately, all of this—while the, the a lot of the unfortunate medical, is,
0: medical tests have been done in history.
1: Yeah, yeah. Don't when we get to World War II, we won't have anything nice to say about the, the Japanese government or the army as well. So,
0: yeah, same about you? the Americans in this regard. But anyway
1: yeah exactly unfortunately this is only the beginning of the disaster
0: yeah now comes the cleanup part so below the reactor there was a large re- water reservoir for the emergency cooling pumps and also served. it also served as a pressure suppression system capable of condensing steam as in steam in case of a small broken steam pipe the third floor above them below the sector served as a steam tunnel the steam released by a broken pipe was supported to enter the steam tunnel and be led into pools to bubble through a layer of water. After the disaster, the pools in the basement were flooded because the ruptured cooling water pipes and accumulated firefighting water and er, and constituted a serious steam explosion risk. The Smoldering graphite fuel and other material above at more than 1,200 degrees Celsius started to burn through the reactor floor and mixed with molten concrete from the reactor lining created a corium, a radioactive semi-liquid material comparable to lava. Great.
1: This is meltdown.
0: If this mixture had melted through the floor into the pool of water, it was feared that it could have created a serious steam explosion that would have ejected even more radioactive radioactive material into the reactor, or sorry, from the reactor. As a result, it became necessary to drain the pool. The bubbler pool could be drained by the opening by opening the sluice gates, but the valves controlling this controlling said gates were located in a flooded corridor in the basement, which is great. So volunteers in wetsuits and re- respirators and equipped with decimeters entered the knee-deep radioactive water and managed to open the valves. The divers were engineers, Alexei Annenko and Valery Bezpilov, as they knew where the valves were. Upon their success, all risk of further steam explosion was eliminated. Unlike has been often reported, the two men did not die shortly after. And one is actually currently still alive with the other dying of heart failure in 2005. So.
1: Isn't there, there's three of them or just there's two? three,
0: but the third one's name wasn't listed.
1: Right. Okay. So two of them are still alive.
0: Uh, well, I don't know. I just know one is still alive. One's died of heart failure. I imagine the other's probably still alive.
1: Yeah. And I think it should be mentioned that the heart failure was not related to <laughs> radiation. Yeah, yeah, no, it was like an unrelated radiation. thing. He
0: lived a long time. Well, he, yeah. he lived till 2005, so it clearly wasn't radiation related.
1: Yeah. But I read somewhere that they attributed more to his smoking.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, I know. And yeah, its
1: So just, just so people know.
0: I feel like the, yeah. Anyways. Um, After the pool gates were open, the fire brigade pumps were used to drain the basement. The operation was completed on May 8th after 20,000 tons of water were pumped out. Now for the meltdown to occur, the reactor would need to reach the water table below the reactor. In order to reduce the likelihood of this, they decided to freeze the ground below the reactor so as to stabilize the foundations. Originally, they were going to use oil drilling equipment to pump liquid nitrogen into the earth, but that plan was scrapped as it was unsustainable, needing 25 tons of liquid nitrogen per day. Instead, Ooh. coal miners were deployed to excavate a tunnel below the reactor to make room for a cooling system. The final design was for, for the cooling system was to incorporate a coiled formation of pipes cooled with water and covered on top with a thin thermally conductive graphite layer. Graphite would also act as a natural refractory material to rapidly cool the suspected molten uranium oxide without burn through. The graphite cooling layer would be between one to two meters thick, or sorry, would be between two one meter thick concrete layers for stabilization. The system was designed by Bolshov and with his graphite concrete quote unquote sandwich is actually a similar concept to a lot of core catchers, which are now part of many nuclear reactor designs. So as a result of Chernobyl, a lot of new designs have things like this underneath them to protect just in case. And uh, a lot of the designs are actually kind of based on this base principle. So the cooling system wasn't actually used as there was a drop in aerial temperatures and that was uh, enough to indicate that the fuel melt had probably, and there was also reports, sorry, that the fuel melt had probably stopped. So they didn't have to deploy this this system, but um, the fuel passed through three stories before coming to rest in one of a number of basement rooms. This made the underground channel redundant as the fuel was self-cooling. The excavation was then filled with concrete to strengthen the foundation below the reactor, just in case it collapsed. In the months immediately after the explosion, the focus shifted to trying to remove the radioactive debris from the roof. The worst of the debris was collected inside what was left of the reactor. However, it was estimated there was approximately hundred tons of debris left on the roof that resulted from the explosion and which had to be removed to enable the safe construction of the sarcophagus, a concrete structure that would entomb the reactor and reduce the radioactive dust being released into the atmosphere. The initial plan was to use robots to clear the debris off the roof using approximately 60 remote control robots, which were mostly built in the USSR. So some of them were just poorly built, but also a lot of them failed because um, high levels of radiation fucked up their controls. <laughs> so that's not great or helpful. Um, as a result, the most highly radioactive materials were actually shoveled by people. Uh, they were known as the Chernobyl liquidators. The liquidators were military and civilians, but mostly military, involved with the cleanup of Chernobyl. They are credited with limiting the long-term and immediately damage, immediate damage from the disaster. These soldiers were wearing heavy protective gear and were dubbed bio-robots by the military. They could only spend a maximum of 40 to 90 seconds working on the rooftops of the surrounding buildings because of the extremely high doses of radiation given off by the blocks of graphite and other debris. Soldiers were only supposed to perform the role of bio-robot as a a maximum of one time, but some soldiers did report having doing this task five or six times, which is terrifying. Only 10% of the debris was actually cleared by the robots, the other 90 was cleared by these liquidators, who numbered somewhere around 5,000 people. At the time, there was still fear that the reactor could enter a self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction and explode again, and as a result, a new containment structure was planned to prevent rain entering and triggering such an explosion, and to prevent further release of radioactive material. It was the largest civil engineering task in history, involving over 250,000 workers who all reached their official lifetime limits of radiation. By December of 1986, the sarcophagus had been erected to seal seal off the reactor and its contents. Environmental and the greater urban decontamination liquidators first washed buildings and roads with a sticky polymerizing fuel or fluid gel which was designed to entrain radioactive dust when and when dried could be peeled off and compacted into configurations in preparation for burial basically they'd peel it off and roll it into what looks like rolls of carpet and then bury it deep in the ground the workers were awarded a unique cleanup medal liquidators worked in deplorable conditions often with little information and they were really often poorly protected so Nobody knew exactly what they were facing. They all just filed in to help because they felt it was their patriotic duty. So a lot of them had no idea what they were facing. They had no idea what the consequences were going to be. They had no idea how dangerous it was. They just knew they had to help and did it.
1: A lot of them were Afghan vets as well.
0: Well, I mean, a lot of them are military. Yeah. Who had just come back from Afghanistan. Basically everybody who worked as a liquidator exceeded their radiation safety limits for a lifetime. A scientific team re-entered during the construction of the sarcophagus as part of an investigation dubbed Complex Expedition to locate and contain nuclear fuel in a way that could not lead to another explosion. They manually collected cold fuel rods, but extreme heat was still emanating from the core. Rates of radiation in different parts of the building were monitored by drilling holes into the reactor, inserting long metal detector tubes. Scientists were exposed to high levels of radiation and radioactive dust. After six months and the help of two, help of a remote camera, they discovered an intensely radioactive mass more than two meters wide inside the basement of unit four. They dubbed this mass the elephant's foot, and it was composed of melted sand, concrete, and a large amount of un- nuclear fuel that had escaped from the reactor.
1: I'll post a picture of it online because there are pictures of this
0: thing. The concrete beneath the reactor was steaming hot and was breached by now solidified lava, which I mentioned before isn't really lava, but it's lava. And these particular spectacular-looking unknown crystalline forms, which were termed Chernobylite. The investigation determined that there was no further risk of an explosion. The official contaminated zones became a uh, stage to a massive cleanup effort which lasted for several months. The official reasons for such early and dangerous con- decontamination efforts, rather than allowing for natural decay, was that the land must be repopulated and brought back into cultivation. The Ukraine is very important for agriculture. But Within 15 months, 75% of the land was under cultivation, even though only a third of the evacuated villages were actually resettled. Which meant that most of the military, or the military, was really doing most of the work. And honestly, the land was of marginal agricultural value anyways. So it's been suggested that that was really just the official reason. And the actual reason was that the government has psychological reason for doing it. They wanted to try and... <laughs> put a halt to panic regarding nuclear energy and were actually hoping to eventually restart Chernobyl because it was a really important power station. So um, they were hoping that by cleaning it up and hey, look, it's all good again. See, it's fine, it's fine, um, but it wasn't fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's approximated that about 400 times more radioactive material was released from Chernobyl than by the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By contrast, the Chernobyl accident released about 100th to 1,000th of the total amount of radioactivity released during the era of nuclear weapons testing at the height of the Cold War. Wow. Yeah. Comforting, right? Yeah, hundred yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Approximately 100,000 <laughs> 100, square kilometers of land was significantly contaminated with fallout, with the worst hit regions being in Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. Slighter levels of contamination were detected all over Europe, like we mentioned in Sweden, being the first ones to actually be like, um fuck happened excuse me (laughs) something's not right essentially like contamination from from chernobyl was scattered irregularly depending on weather conditions but much of it deposited on mountainous regions such as the alps the welsh mountains the scottish highlands and this is because cooling system caused radioactive rainfalls so britain was very susceptible it actually (laughs) interestingly enough changed sheep herding patterns in much of the uk and in norway there's a like Native mountainous sheep population in Norway that was like permanently affected by radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, Sweden and Norway received heavy heavy fallout because the contaminated air collided with a cold front, which brought rain. Yeah, so rain was purposely seeded over 10,000 square kilometers of Belarus by the Soviet Air Force to rem- remove radioactive particles from the clouds heading towards highly populated areas. Heavy black-colored rain fell on the city of Gomel, which is gross when you think about it.
1: Yeah. Oh. They they talk about black rain at Hiroshima as well, yep. and Nagasaki, so. Yeah. Uh, That's grim.
0: Yeah. Reports from, the Soviet, from both Soviet and Western scientists indicate that Belarus received about 60% of the contamination that fell on the Soviet Union. A large area in Russia, south of Bransk, which is about 400 kilometers south of Moscow, was contaminated, as were parts of northwestern Ukraine, obviously. It is estimated that more than 1 million people could have been affected by the radiation just in, like, the immediate radiation, not including people all over Europe. So the Chernobyl plant is located next to the Pripyat River, which feeds the Dnieper River, or reservoir system, one of the largest surface water systems in Europe, which at the time supplied water to Kiev's 2.4 million residents and was still in spring flood when the disaster happened. As a result, the radioactive contamination of water systems was a major problem (laughs) in the immediate aftermath of the incident. Guidelines for levels of radioiodine and drinking water were tempor- temporarily raised, which allowed for most water to be reported as safe. Officially, it was stated that all contaminants had settled to the bottom a quote in an insoluble phase and would not dissolve for 800 to 1,000 years. A year after the incident though, it was announced that even the water of the Chernobyl plant's cooling pond was within acceptable norms of radiation. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Nevertheless, two months after the disaster, Kiev's water supply was changed from the Dnepr to the Desna River. It's probably safer. Uh, Meanwhile, all silt traps were constructed along with um, an enormous 30-meter-deep underground barrier to prevent groundwater from the destroyed reactor entering the Pripyat River. Groundwater was not badly affected by the Chernobyl accident since radionuclides with short half-lives decayed away long before they could affect groundwater supplies, and the longer-lived radionuclides were absorbed to surface soils before they could transfer to groundwater. After the disaster, four square kilometers of pine forest directly downwind of the reactor turned red and died, earning the name of the Red Forest. Some animals in the worst areas also died or stopped reproducing. Most domestic animals were removed from the explosion zone, but horses left on an island in the Pripyat River from the, down from the power plant died when their thyroid glands were destroyed by extremely high radiation doses. Some cattle on the island died, and some actually survived, and those that did were survived stunted because of thyroid damage but their next generation actually seemed to be normal and there's lots of animals in the exclusion zone that are reproducing and for the most part fairly normal they have levels of radiation in them but they are like not deformed or anything
1: yeah i mean there are obviously reports of deformities
0: so there was um
1: amongst animals
0: yeah so but only like really closely related to like so Basically between the years of 1986 and 1991, this like collective farm or whatever, that was pretty close reported like over 350 deformities or something, which everything leading up to that point, they'd only reported like maybe 10. So it was like clearly very increased, but beyond that there, and I'll talk about it and I'll talk about it in a bit, but there's actually like no long-term studies to show that like or there aren't really any long like really like, there's some deformities, but like for the most part over the long term, it's actually not been that many. Like it was immediate, and then since then it's kind of like normalized.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh they've like reported like extra limbs, extra like three-headed calves or like two-headed calves, like things like that that yeah. happen occasionally, not often, but sometimes, and then happen more often. And there were some deformities amongst humans as well, but I'm actually, I'm going to talk about that right now. So in terms of the human impact or actually back to animals, um, so interestingly (laughs) had an impact on the wild boar population of, of Europe because of what they were eating. So like the fungi, like mushrooms and things like that. So wild boar, depending on where they were, were more likely to be radioactive because of what they were eating, not because they actually Mm -hmm. were radioactive or anything. (laughs) It was weird. I don't know. I didn't really read that much about it. I just saw a big thing about wild boar. Um, And there's, and as a result, because people hunt them to eat them, you have to be able to like, there's like a minimum that's safe in a, safe for humans to eat.
1: A wild boar in Europe? On
0: radiation, In those boar, like in radiation in your food. Right, okay. And so, because there's a lot of animals that are being hunted and that have been like affected by the radiation all over Europe, like wild boar in Germany have been affected. So it's not local just to the ukraine but like there's levels of radiation detected yeah in wild boar in germany yeah
1: well jared harris was saying that they had to cull a bunch of sheep in the uk Mm -hmm. or i don't know if they had to but they did
0: they did out of precaution i don't know if they had to or not for sure but
1: yeah but apparently like one of like sheep is particularly would have a particular problem with radiation as well because of their because it, it gets completely stuck in their coats. Yeah. So yeah that's that's definitely why bad. I
0: mentioned earlier that that population of Norwegian sheep were permanently affected essentially
1: right but I <laughs> that's just one thing popping out of my head yeah. is that they killed like tens of thousands of sheep in the UK I think it was yeah.
0: So there was a lot of changed like sheep herding patterns, changed a lot of stuff for the herding industry and the sheep industry is really big. <laughs> So in terms of the human impact, the only known causal deaths from the accident involved workers in the plant and firefighters. So talking about death counts when it comes to this kind of stuff is really difficult. The vast majority of the population of Pripyat slept through the distant sound of the explosion, including the station engineer, who only became aware at 6 a.m., the start of his next work shift, which I'm sure is great news to find out when you come to work. (laughs) Oh, by the way, exploded. Have fun.
1: Plants on fire. (laughs)
0: There was an explosion. It's great. We're all going to die.
1: What is that glowing thing like of the plant? (laughs) What the fuck?
0: Anyways, he would later be taken to the hospital, where he later made made the acquaintance of a teen who had ventured out alone by bike that night to watch roof fires. Um, As of 2019, they remained in contact. With one exception, and upon the arrival of world specialists, all serious cases of radiation sickness were treated by Dr. Robert Peter Gale, who documented a first-of-its-kind treatment. The eventual medical report states that in those who were treated for acute radiation syndrome, 28 died from it each over the following days. In the years afterward, 15 people have died from thyroid cancer, and it is roughly estimated that cancer deaths caused by Chernobyl may reach a total of about 4,000 among the 5 million persons residing in the contaminated areas. The report also says it is impossible to reliably predict the number of fatal cancers arising from the incident as small differences in assumptions can result in large differences in estimated health costs. The report represents the view of the eight UN organizations. Of all 66,000 Belarusian emergency workers by the mid 1990s, their government reported only 150 had died. Given that Belarus is still a brutal dictatorship with little to no freedom, that number seems unlikely to be true. In my opinion, the WHO states that, uh, quote, children conceived before or after their father's exposure showed no statistically significant differences in mutation frequencies. This statistically insignificant increase was seen by independent research when analyzing the children of Chernobyl liquidators. There are some people out there who are working very hard to attempt to suggest that mutation rates amongst animals and children continues to be higher in Chernobyl, despite none of their studies being able to be repeatable. And most, like, there's a lot of, it's really difficult to predict because gathering data is really hard And none of these studies that have shown high rates of mutation have been able to be repeatable, which is not good science. So the general um, accepted stance at the moment is that like, there are probably a lot more effects than we know, but to say that they're high rates, like these people is a little bit false too, because it's, that's not good science. So anyways.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so difficult to figure out like rates of cancers caused by
0: Um, so ultimately, well, and there's other factors too. So ultimately the number of potential deaths arising from the disaster is heavily debated as will be the case with this pandemic also, by the way, the 4,000 cancer death prediction is based on just one model, which assumes that the damage inflicted by radiation at low doses is directly proportional to the dose. So the reason that this is so difficult to predict is that the effect of low dose radiation on people over time is not really known. We don't have a lot of information. We don't really know how it works, how much it affects people. So this model is assuming things kind of on a on a flat plane, but we actually don't have all the information. We don't know how low level of radiation actually affects people, whether it does, how badly it does. Maybe it's causing cancer more than we know. Maybe it's not. We don't know. There's a number of other uncertainties, which is why this radiation specialists contend that this the model used here is not really great. But um, the Union of Concerned Scientists which is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is the home of uh, MIT, is uh, estimated that the number of excess cancer deaths worldwide, including the contaminated areas, is approximately 27,000 people based on the same model. Greenpeace also commissioned <laughs> commissioned a study, which is critical of this report, asserting that the most recently published figures indicate that in Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, the accident could have resulted in 10,000 to 200,000 additional deaths in the period between 1990 and 2004. The report was criti- criticized for relying on non peer reviewed and locally produced studies and the spokesman for the WHO suggested that the co- conclusions were motivated by ideology. Which with Greenpeace is entirely possible.
1: Yeah, I
0: and not unlikely.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm not I don't really take anything Greenpeace. I do. I did. I do a, I a, I do a hard a
0: hard eye roll. At Greenpeace. Anyways, a significant issue is, like I mentioned, is establishing consistent data in which to base the analysis of the impact of the disaster. Since 1991, there have been large social and political changes, obviously, um, <laughs> <laughs> which have occurred in the affected regions. And these changes have had a significant impact on the administration of healthcare, socioeconomic stability, and the manner in which data is collected. Collapse of the Soviet Union, poor funding, imprecise dosimetry, and the difficulties of tracking people have limited the studies and the reliability. So there's actually really no good way to know how bad this has affected people over time. Don't know. Yeah. No really good way to know.
1: It's a shame. Yeah. Really.
0: Yeah. So according to Gorbachev, the USSR spent around $18 U.S. dollars at the time, which, adjusted for inflation, is around $35.7 billion today. On containment and decontamination. So basically the USSR bankrupted itself. As of 2005, the cost over 30 years for Belarus alone was estimated at 235 billion US dollars. In their 2003 to 2005 report, the Chernobyl forum stated that between five and seven percent of government spending in Ukraine is still related to Chernobyl. So there's a Chernobyl benefits program and it's a very well sought after program because you get access to extra benefits. And so, at this point, I think encompasses like five percent of their population or something, and um it's crazy. and uh there's some debate as to whether or not there's enough people there's a lot of people who are on there that shouldn't be, uh, as is the case with all government programs. <laughs> um I don't really have a lot to say on the validity of those claims. I don't know, but regardless, it's a huge number of people yeah. who are on these Who is who's on this, um like in Ukraine they spent five to 7% of their national budget just on recovery in 2018 related to Chernobyl still much of so much of the, much of that current cost is related to the social benefits to some 7 million people over three, over three countries, but still both Ukraine and Belarus in their first, first months of independence after the collapse of the Soviet union, lowered legal radiation thresholds from the Soviet union's previous threshold. And part of the reason for that is because that way fewer people qualify. And it's, yeah. So politically, as I mentioned before, the disaster gave great significance to the policy of Glasnost, as Gorbachev used this opportunity to criticize the handling of the situation. He himself has stated that Chernobyl was, quote, perhaps the real cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union, as it opened the possibility of much greater freedom of expression to the point that the system as we knew it could no longer continue, end quote. Gorbachev has actually been really fabulous since he left office. (laughs) He's done a lot of really great interviews. So to Gorbachev, this disaster proved the wisdom and necessity of Glasnost. While there is no singular cause for the dissolution of the Soviet Union like we'll talk about, there is a case to be made that Chernobyl was very much involved. (laughs) It was one of those key pillars in the collapse. Glasnost had taken hold in Soviet society by the time of the disaster, and outrage over the disaster had begun to spread even amongst the most loyal of Soviet citizens, who had never questioned the infallibility of their government. Gorbachev maintained Glasnost despite being criticized and attempted to woo the Soviet intelligentsia. He needed their support to achieve his reforms and to hold back hardliners, who he saw as enemies of liberty and his plans. So he accepted their barrage of criticism. Basically, he needed them so badly he had to take whatever criticism they threw at him because he needed their help. But the intelligentsia's complaints had trickled down to the population and it opened up lines of comparison with the West, which led to discontent they had been led to believe it for their whole forever that the soviet union was better at everything across the board better at everything compared to everyone else especially compared to the west and chernobyl blew that open <laughs> when uh, the information about that and the public health crisis leaked soviet citizens citizens realized that and i don't i'm not i don't want to say that it's like a plato's cave thing entirely i actually upon reflection that's not a great comparison to be honest because a lot of people weren't stupid, they saw how like shitty the system kind of was from the inside. But I think Chernobyl, I mean, you can see that just by like, Soviet, honestly, Russian humor, and like lots of Soviet humor and dissident stuff like that. You can just people knew people weren't dumb, they understood what was going on. But to some extent, they just didn't realize how bad it was. And so all of this information was really a uh, an eye opening experience to how how corrupt and uh, startlingly incompetent their system was.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, you know what the official death toll is? I do not. It's 54. Yeah. That's the official death toll that they continue to give to this day, even though probably more.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that we just will never know. And yeah, and 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 that's and when I say, like, to really emphasize healthcare in the Soviet Union, uh, wasn't super great to start with, and it got worse when the Soviet Union collapsed. And it's not because of a lack of doctors, they actually, Russia graduates some of like, I think, honestly, more doctors than any other place on earth. The problem is, it's a very poorly funded system, and so. There's a lot of always like deaths that are kind of related to these incidents that aren't like directly related. Like lots of social issues that come with these, like high high rates of alcoholism, poor health care, smoking, just poor lifestyle that existed because there's poor health care and you don't have a lot of like great nutrition and money and things like that. Like poor social conditions also lead to more deaths. And we'll see that through this pandemic too. The people who are poorest in society get hard, hit hardest in these situations. And, mm-hmm. um, I think that can probably be said of this, 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 case too, right? Like there's a lot of people who definitely were impacted too. Um, yeah, just like later definitely. on by things that they might have, may not have actually been directly impacted by radiation, but other things have, you could probably tr- trace it back to Chernobyl in the end, but it, yeah.
1: Yeah. In the aftermath, Dyatlov, Bakanoff, and Fomin were all tried and found guilty because they went against safety regulations. No shit. Which and they were they were basically the fall guys for the disaster, even though in reality, for the most part, it was shoddy Soviet craftsmanship. Yeah, they definitely their actions definitely didn't help, <laughs> and were the immediate cause. But this, all of this could have been prevented if the reactors were properly built. Another major event that happened is on April 27, 1988, Valery Legasov was found in his apartment having hanged himself in the middle of the night. The day after he was found, he was meant to go before the Soviet Bureau and give an update on the situation in Chernobyl. And it is believed that he did not want to lie again and therefore hung himself in order to force people to admit. What was actually going on? He at this point was very well known in the, in the international scientific community. And so his death caused questions to be asked. After his death, the Soviets finally admitted the bad design of the reactors and had, were forced to fix them. All three men who were tried, they were sentenced to hard labor in a prison camp, all sentenced to ten years hard labor, but most of them were out after two or three years. Dyatlov later died of a heart attack related to his sickness of radiation. And the other two died of, they were not healthy men. (laughs) I'll put it that way.
0: To be fair, Russian men in general aren't. No. The average lifespan is 53, so.
1: Yeah. The other three reactors continue operation due to the Soviets not being able to afford the cost of shutting the the entire plant down. Yeah. 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 A fire in Reactor 2 resulted in its shutdown in 1981. Yeah, discussions over Chernobyl's shutdown increased with Ukraine's independence in 1991, with the new parliament, known as the Verkova Rada, being comprised mostly of young reformist politicians. The new government cancelled plans for Reactor 2's reactivation. Reactor one was shut down and began the process of decommissioning in, in November, 1996, after an intense series of foreign pressure. Reactor three was shut down in December, 2000, and the, the last of the reactors to do so and ending the plant's functionality. All three remaining units are awaiting decommissioning and have begun the process in April to 2015. The sarcophagus that Lindsay mentioned, which is an absolutely chilling name, uh was only meant to last between 20 and 30 years. And it was simply a temporary solution in order to give time for a new design better made for contain containment. I should also actually mention it's the proper term here is confinement because it is actually it, containment. Apparently I read this somewhere. Containment is more to do with in terms of radiation, is more to do with stuff that we cannot see that is flying around. Confinement is physical material. So, following Ukrainian independence, the government launched a competition for international designers and architects to plan a potential replacement. A group of British designers had their entry approved in 2004. The design was a large arch structure which would be built off-site and then slid over the existing sarcophagus before it is placed down over the entire building. Construction off-site was seen as essential in order to prevent radiation dosages to construction workers. An arch was chosen as it would, be, it would have enough height room to fit the plant's chimneys and would be easier to slide over the plant than a box shape. French companies Vinci Construction Grand Projet and Bouillage Travaux Public were given the construction contract for the project and formed the consortium named Navarca. First work was done in order to stabilize the existing containment structure in order to have it last longer during during the construction of what became known as the new safe confinement. Scaffolding was installed in order to help hold up the roof. This was completed in 2009. Construction of the NSC began in September 2010 with the site located 980 feet away from the reactor. Parts were first assembled in Italy, and it was delivered to the construction site. This took a fleet of 18 ships and 2,500 trucks to transport. Construction on the framework was done first, taking until 2014 to complete. Afterwards, construction of the interior shell began. This lasted until 2016. The structure is 108 meters tall weighs 31,000 tons and is made of steel with polycarbonate inner panels. Hydraulic jacks were used to lift the structure before it was slid to the it was slid the 590 feet to the reactor. This process lasted from November 14th to 29th, 2016. It remains the largest land-based object ever moved by humans. Further construction was done in order to ensure it was safely confined and it was officially declared complete in July, 2019. The final cost of the project was 2.1 billion euros. The structure is designed to last 100 years, giving time for further cleanup development of new structures to be completed and for the radiation half-life to further decay safely. So yeah, this that entire reactor building is under this massive arch structure that looks like a giant hanger. But literally they slit this thing over and then just put it down and it fits snugly over this. I've seen the footage of them doing this. It's incredible.
0: Largest largest now, civil engineering post. project in history.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the good news is it has been extremely successful. Yeah. They have found that the uh the that the radiation in the air has dropped significantly. Like people can now stand next to the structure and not pick not pick up a large amount of radiation in the air from their Geiger counters, which is incredible, so it's successful. I mean the main problem now is that there's still a lot of soil contaminated, which basically they have to just dig up that soil and then dig up the soil underneath that and then put the put the radioactive Buried. soil on underneath and then bury it, yeah. It's a long and tedious process
0: yeah. and expensive.
1: I personally don't think Pripyat will ever be inhabited I again. I don't
0: think so either. seems unlikely.
1: Yeah. So this is this type of uh, level of, ra- of, there's different levels of, of uh, nuclear accidents, Chernobyl rated a seven, which is the highest. Actually,
0: so someone report that it rated as an eight. Or well, if it, really? it would really if the, if, it, if it went higher than seven. Oh, if it, went it, higher, would it would like be like an made. eight or a ten.
1: <laughs> yeah, the high, but the highest it can go is it's seven, and there's only one other incident that is rated a seven, and that is the Fukushima disaster. So, for those of you who don't know, there's a massive earthquake in Japan in 2011, off the coast. Of, yeah, off the coast of Japan in 2011. What happened is that there was an earthquake that affected the whole island because it happened off the coast. There was a massive tsunami. I remember seeing the footage and everything. Well, Japan uses nuclear energy in a lot of places, and Fukushima plant is located near the epicenter of this earthquake. And it des- the earthquake destabilized the reactor, causing it to partially melt down and then explode, and then the core did melt down, and it has caused a pretty significant. Disaster in Japan that they're still feeling the effects of today. So uh, there's a lot of comparisons between Chernobyl and Fukushima. So both are the only two disasters classified as a level seven by the international nuclear event scale. For comparison, Three Mile Island is a level five. Both saw the extent of the catastrophe downplayed by the respective governments. This is another reason why I don't understand why the Japanese government, why the current Japanese government is still in power. Yeah. Fukushima's arguably more severe as Japan does not have the landmass available to safely contain all of the contaminated materials in the surrounding area. So there's debate on which is worse and I don't think either one is worse than the other, but there's definitely different effects. So unfortunately, again, I don't think anyone's going to move back to Fukushima, despite what the Japanese government says. And since then, there's now been massive anti-nuclear movement in Japan, I think rightfully so. Yeah. Because there are other plants in similar areas near fault lines. Mm-hmm. There's, I do believe nuclear energy will be necessary for us to get the sustainable energy. There's just some countries that can't do it.
0: I agree. I think there's just a level of... Well, I was having this conversation earlier, actually, too. I've <sighs> had this conversation a lot lately. Um, I am in favor of nuclear power. I've, I, uh, like I said, I've actually, I've been to a nuclear power plant. I live next. I lived like 120, mm, I lived like less than 200 kilometers from nuclear power plant for six months. Like that's been there for ages. I've yeah. So I went to the, uh, nuclear power station in order Finland, which is in Western Finland and the Gulf of Bothnia. And I toured it. It was really cool. Actually, they have a really cool like visitor center and stuff. Um, no, it's, it's super cool though. Cause they've, they've done, they've done that in an attempt to sort of like, I don't know, probably make people less scared, um, but it's neat because in the nuclear, in the visitor center, like there's like a walking path, like around the compound and stuff. Like, obviously you don't get to go into any like crazy buildings or anything, but like you get to they've built like, <laughs> like, like there's like just like really nice, like beautiful walking path in part. Cause there's kind of like all like the ponds and stuff and it's on the Gulf. So it's just like really beautiful. And um, then in the visitor center, they have these like videos that show you like from the mining of the uranium all the way up to power. And so it was funny because you know I was there with my my family had come to visit when I was living there, and we went to go to this power station. And um, we were visiting my host families, and they suggested we go check it out. It was like a local attraction thingy. And uh, we were there, and all the uranium that's used is from Uranium City, Saskatchewan. <laughs> pretty much like most of the uranium that's used in nuclear power plants all over the world comes from Canada. So it does kind of entertain me that we don't really have any, (laughs) like we don't produce nuclear power, but we produce a shit ton of uranium. (laughs) Like,
1: yeah, well, and the
0: prairies I think are one of the most geologically stable places on the planet to have one.
1: Yeah. The only unstable thing about it is that we probably shouldn't build it in a place where there's a lot of oil. Um, like where there's a lot of oil drilling because that actually has caused seismic activity? Yeah, no,
0: especially fracking. Yeah. I'm thinking like, I'm thinking actually, honestly, um, southern, like the southern prairies, there's a, I mean, the the reason I say the prairies is one, there's like, for the most part, quite stable geologically, not near fault lines. Um, The worst weather that we get are mostly blizzards, which you can definitely deal with in a nuclear power plant. Maybe a tornado, but it doesn't usually get hot enough. And even then, like, like, really, it's only up near like Edmonton that you'd get a tornado big enough. And yeah. you're probably not going to put it up there anyways because there's lots of drilling activity, so like not worth it. Um, yeah like I've thought this through actually like fairly extensively. The only problem is that there are no good natural geological barriers in case of an in, in case of an issue. Yeah, the hope is that at that point, um, it's a geologically stable enough point place that you wouldn't really need that
1: <laughs> right. And I mean, Canada apparently has, Either the safest, if not one of them, most safest, kind of nuclear reactors in operation. Yeah. And those are the can-do reactors. These are also reactors that are able to reuse heavy water multiple times for cooling. Mm-hmm. So there's less waste.
0: Yep. Yeah. Cheaper.
1: That that's the main like that's the main thing I understand with people against nuclear power is the waste. Yeah. But Luckily, there's, like, new... It's getting better. They're finding new new types of fuel that to use. That was one of the cool things at this
0: power plant in Finland is they, like, showed you how it was deposited and everything. And um, the amount that's actually, like, deposited is less than people think. Like, the amount of waste actually produced is a lot less than people think. Like, I didn't quite realize, like, the the actual... Because they showed... And they literally, too, have, like, in the building, like, one of the tubes that will go underground and they're the tubes are huge but like the amount that actually gets filled in them like it takes a long time to produce enough waste ultimately yeah. and um yeah. so that was interesting like i'm 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 pro nuclear power i obviously have reservations as we all do
1: yeah i'm i'm pro as long as it's like only a temporary solution yeah
0: i mean i think that i'm i'm pro nuclear power as long as it's on the way to better solutions like hydro turb, wind turbines solar whatever wave yeah, ocean stuff yeah
1: i don't know what the proper term for wave power I kind is of called. class there's a there's, there's a, a name, name for it, it but
0: i sort of think of it as hydro in the sense of like water it's not it's not yeah, it's not a but dam there, but it's just i think of like what's yeah. kinetic
1: kinetic i think, I think it is kinetic, yeah. yeah um and i'm but it, yeah so i'm i'm all for it that's something down the line of course and uh and but the thing is like with the waste is that there you there's a new type they're they're replacing plutonium with another type of reactor fuel that's more stable does not need doesn't um does not need some another thing there to stabilize it like plutonium does and it, it could be used longer and he creates less waste so i wonder if that's what they're using in finland because I don't remember. it starts with a t i can't remember the Possibly. name but um I'm sure. uh, but yeah so this is a bit of fun for you guys. Is that uh, Chernobyl is a massive tourist destination now? It's known as a dark tourist uh, spot. Top, and what top dark there
0: actually also did like a thing through there, like back in the day. Oh,
1: mm-hmm. really? So, just to briefly explain, dark what dark tourism is is basically ter- people who go to certain areas because it's either grotesque or infamous or whatever. So, like. The Chernobyl Exclusion Zone would be a dark tourist spot where famous, like Jack the Ripper tours, that'd be dark tourism. Yeah. So stuff like that. Yeah, due to its notoriety and the the potential danger, it has become a massive dark tourist spot. The Ukrainian government reported 50,000 visitors to Chernobyl in 2017 and 72,000 in 2018. And funny enough, the HBO miniseries Chernobyl helped increase interest in travel to experience the exclusion zone by 40%. That's not
0: interesting at all. That's completely like expected. Honestly, that's not surprising at all.
1: No, it isn't, but it's, I just, it's just like 40 fucking percent.
0: Yeah. It's not surprising.
1: Yeah. As of July twenty nineteen, the Ukrainian government is actually in the process of establishing Chernobyl as an official tourist site. I mean, now it's a lot safer to be yeah. there. So this is in order to increase safety for tourist groups visiting the site because to be honest, a lot of group tourists like people giving these tours are just like aren't really well trained. Yeah.
0: They're not well, they're just um, looking to make a buck. They're not really like interested in safety.
1: Pretty much, yeah. There are groups out there that. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Like, don't get me wrong. Don't get us wrong. Yeah,
0: they're just taking advantage of people who want to go. They don't care.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they'll they'll take you into areas that you don't that they know is unsafe, but you don't. So, they they the Ukrainian government wants to make this an official tourist site because they want to improve the safety of tourists. And make sure that no one is unwillingly being brought into highly irradiated. And also areas. probably
0: officially capitalize on the money.
1: Oh God, yeah. I would. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I think that's fair. Oh,
0: I do too. Like, if people are already doing it, why not make money on it? Because you have to support like seven million people.
1: <laughs> yeah. As long as it, as long as a lot of that money is used on the cleanup.
0: Yeah, and or I'm fine paying with the benefits of the people who are. On the system, in the system, yeah, you know what I mean, like paying exactly. for that kind of thing, which oh, is yeah. what most of the money that they're spending is doing, is dealing, is that yeah. is paying for people. So,
1: yeah, exactly. So currently, there are plans to improve the infrastructure so that it's safer to get there, to increase the amount of checkpoints to prevent people illegally entering, improve routes and waterways, and provide tourist groups with better radiation monitoring equipment. Apparently though um you can walk around there safe, but once you get out you have to throw your boots away.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Like that's what's the what's gonna get the most irradiated are your boots.
0: Yeah, because of the ground.
1: So wear lead so the ground. Wear lead socks.
0: Say that might give you lead poisoning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. Which also
0: sucks. So like (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't recommend that either. Um.
1: One last thing i had to bring up is vice did a documentary with uh shane and uh one of the european consultants uh pella yeah went to the exclusion zone to hunt wild yeah. boar so basically I they bribed their so tour guides they bribed their tour guides to get the guns and one of them is like a, one of those sniper rifles an svd yeah. and they, they have an ak-47 with them as well and it's just like okay and, then, and appa- what's really funny is that at the, uh, Near the end of the documentary They 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 were shooting at the boars They didn't hit any And then they went running after them And they said that their tour guide was like No, 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 no And they're like, what? what's wrong? It's like, you're running into the Red Forest yeah. uh, If you run in there, you're going to die So like, oh yeah.
0: That um, or you'll get mauled by Well, If the Red Forest doesn't kill you You'll just get mauled by the wild boars
1: yeah, that too. Those wild, well, apparently wild there's boar like... can
0: kill people very easily. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> they're not yeah. to be fucked with.
1: There's there are apparently bears and wolves living in the buildings now.
0: It doesn't surprise me.
1: It doesn't. No, I mean that's a normal thing. But yeah, they like live around there. They hunt in there. It's a fascinating oh, like, yeah. location. I was quite. I was like trying to think before we recorded this. I'm like, would I? Because I was like, I'd go to the moon. If I had a chance to go to the moon, I'd go to the moon. But then I'm questioned. I question myself: Would I go to the Chernobyl exclusion zone? And I'm like, maybe.
0: I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't think I would.
1: I'm. I'm. I'm a little less hesitant now, like knowing how, sa- how safe. It's A lot more yeah, safe. Same. But yeah, same. Yeah, it's getting I, safer. I still
0: don't know if I do. I think because even if even if the Ukrainians make it an official tourist place and they can capitalize on it, I. I'm not cool with that. That's not ethical to me. Also, my fears my fears are different. Like compared to going to the moon, like going to the moon, it's ter- that terrifies me, like hundred percent. And I, I would I would go though because that's an opportunity. But I think it's like it's different for me because like the risks associated are completely different. Like going to space, like if I die, like, if something goes wrong, like I will die instantly. Yeah. With this, it's like. It may be safe, but like safer, but like, eh. I already have. Yeah,
1: I'm with. I've you already there. got
0: a risk of cancer. I already have a deep history of cancer in my family. I don't need to add any risk. I'm good.
1: Yeah, like I'm with you there. I'm all right. I,
0: and also I just I'd be a i be just don't think it's. I don't know. I just don't think it's the type of thing that's like ethical either. I,
1: don't I know. bet go. I bet going to the moon is safer.
0: Yeah, honestly, probably. Yeah. Uh. It really honestly is. Like, I bet you it is.
1: Like, if I were guaranteed it was extremely safe and we wouldn't be going into dangerous places, then yeah.
0: I think the thing for me is, like, the knowing that we don't really know the effect of low-level radiation. Like, that's yeah. just it. Like, it's not, and I can be guaranteed all that I want that they're not going to take me into the red forest or into these places that are instantly going to kill me. But, like, yeah. I don't know. There's an inherent risk there that I'm not cool with. And again, honestly, it is just an ethical tourism thing for me where I'm like, why? Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. What the
0: fuck? Like, I, and I, but at the same time, I get it. Like, I honestly, though, I view it a lot like the tours of people going through the ninth ward after Hurricane Katrina. It's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you're just looking at people who are suffering. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: yeah, it's ridiculous.
0: That's just weird. Like, what for the those, hell?
1: Who, if you guys, you, you guys if you want something to watch like to binge watch through this go to netflix and watch dark tourist it is awesome it
0: is really good
1: it's the same guy who did the movie tickled which is one of my favorite documentaries i've ever seen in my life by the way but go see go watch dark tourist it is incredible
0: yeah it's really good
1: yeah do you uh do you have a interesting fact
0: i do actually have a fact kind of related to this. So Chernobyl, along with uh, Challenger disaster and Three Mile Island and the uh, Bhopal chemical plant disaster in uh, India are basically being used as like case studies by both the US government and other third parties in just researching the root causes of such disasters. So like sleep deprivation, things like that. So like Chernobyl is like one of a few very specific catastrophic events that have taken place it's up there with challenger and uh and Bhopal, which is actually another i don't know if you know anything about Bhopal.
1: i do know quite a bit about horrifying
0: Bhopal, oh my god yeah Whew. that yeah. wasn't even a really good fact but it was a fact so
1: we'll, we'll get yeah. there
0: i do oh, god i um, don't, I don't you know if i n- want to get there
1: <laughs> yeah there's a lot that we're like we want to do this but it'll just.
0: I just don't want well,
1: to it'll be yeah I don't remember if you mentioned this during the moon landing episode but apparently the first living things ever sent into space were fruit flies
0: i don't think you did mention that
1: yeah they sent fruit flies up there because they're like well let's see what kind of weird things that the radiation will cause yeah. when in the upper atmosphere when they came back and they were fine they're like oh we can send people up there
0: it's a natural jump from fruit flies to people
1: yeah also apparently the only known thing to have given birth in space is a cockroach
0: that does not surprise me at all which is
1: insane they're, they're,
0: cockroaches humans cockroaches always, survive literally everything that's that does not surprise me
1: pretty much like, yeah but I mean they've sent so much shit so many weird living things up in the space they sent spiders to see if they could spin webs um, well I mean they, they the sent, Russians
0: sent that gecko Go get that gecko back.
1: <laughs> yeah, they sent they sent salamanders. They cut off the arms and la- or the legs of the salamanders and sent them up into space to see if they would grow back. Did they? They did. And the reason why they did that now it seems like a weird thing to do, but the reason why they did that is because they said, like, they're like, say if an astronaut gets a cut. Oh,
0: you just want to see if your skin will regenerate.
1: Yeah, exactly. So they proved that, that actually it can is happen, like
0: a valid so. scientific. There's. <sighs> A lot of really stupid things are actually Valentine, valid scientific experiments.
1: Yeah, a lot of cool things there's, too. There's, I learned I learned these facts on a video. Uh, I showed Lindsay this guy, Sam Onella Academy. He's fantastic. I'll, he's really funny too, but he does these like weird history videos of like the weird shit. And one of them was uh, the like a list of animals that they sent up into space. It was mostly monkeys. But I'll I'll post the link to this guy because I think everyone should go follow him. Cause he's great. He's hilarious. Uh that's Chernobyl. We have one episode left in the season.
0: Which the season is definitely dragged out, much like all of life right now. This time is weird. But uh yeah.
1: thank you guys for under thank you guys for understanding. Yeah. So
0: you're all pretty great. Um yeah. housekeeping. So uh once again. Our Patreon this month is being donated to the Calgary Food Bank. Um, If you would like to make a specific donation to a food bank, we recommend it. Um, Food banks are being completely overrun. They were not built to deal with a crisis like this. Uh, So in North America, Food Banks of Canada and feedingamerica.org are your places to go. Um, If you want to support us while also supporting the food bank, check out our patreon we would appreciate that we appreciate all of you um follow us on social media we've got lots of updates we were planning some really great quarantine content and we still are probably going to execute lots of it it'll be a little more difficult since i've gone i'm back to work but i'm happy about that so good problems to have Um, (laughs) because most a lot of people are not in my situation so
1: yeah, exactly. The other thing is going to be not there's not really going to be a break between season three and season four. We just yeah, it'll be
0: a week, couple of weeks. We'll maybe release a other nonsense here and there, but short yeah, break. literally. Yeah,
1: literally the 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 break is we're releasing another nonsense and then kind of jumping yeah. right into things. So,
0: so we're so. gonna keep it rolling. Um, yeah, good times. Um, yeah.
1: so we'll be back. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the fall of the USSR. Probably a shorter episode. I'm assuming. Yeah depends so this was a longer episode obviously yeah
0: it'll be sh- well, it'll be shorter than this i can guarantee that
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think it'll be probably so, one of our standard length episodes we'll...
1: yeah as you noticed i didn't release this on a monday this this time i released it on tuesday because well it's easter
0: also so. happy passover to our jewish friends
1: happy easter to
0: christian friends
1: Christian friends. On the, on the day and, uh, we're, we're to, recording uh, this
0: on Good Friday, and I'm going to be a terrible Catholic and eat steak for dinner.
1: I think we're going to be good Catholics, and I think because I think we're having fish.
0: Ugh. I hate Good Friday. Good Friday yeah. is my worst nightmare because I fucking hate fish. Really? You.
1: I I love fish. I love fish. Anyway, to a very to a very good friend of mine, uh, Feliz anniversario Her birthday is coming up soon. I'm not telling you when it is. And she's been teaching me Portuguese so you might hear some Portuguese me say some Portuguese stuff <laughs> from time to time here so anyway, that's enough pandering. I oh uh, if you haven't checked it out yet I have a blog on up on oh, WordPress yeah, right. about Mass Jesus. hysteria events.
0: The blog is also so, a thing we're trying to resurrect. Yeah
1: I'll be writing a bit more in the next couple weeks hopefully i haven't decided what to write yet but i want to write another
0: i have an episode on uh the shutdown of the nhl coming yeah. right yes that i yes. Okay. sort of so, forgot that i wrote <laughs>
1: that'll be coming out soonish yeah probably the week after yeah. this episode. yeah look, so look for it soon
0: um yeah i'm Lindsay.
1: i'm jonah thank you guys so much talk to you later take care